humans have butts. We do. And you got two separate what? butt cheeks, okay? <laughs> you, so have two, you're in, you have butt? You have two separate butt cheeks. <laughs> And we're back on our podcast. 51. Episode 51. <coughs> One away, Colty, from a full year. Congratulations. We did it. We did it. It's crazy <laughs> to think about that. Like, literally one episode away from a full year at this thing. Yeah. Um, couple quick things I want to do. If you haven't already, please give us a subscribe, like, comment, review, whatever. Um, I'll mention the name Kevin Tolbert. <laughs> who's the winner of our uh, combo kit for our buck roar. Yeah, thanks for um, listening, Kevin. So I sent Kevin a message. I think he was on YouTube. Send him a message. He's supposed to send us his address to uh, our email, and we'll get that out. The winner of a new grunt tube. <laughs> uh, in the same right, we're going to do a South Cam Fusion for this week. Um, we'll do AT&T or Verizon. So you tell us, but obviously it's something that Jared and I, uh, are pretty much addicted to, uh, and just a great, you know, piece of equipment for Intel real time. So yeah, they're, they're solid cameras, man, for the price. Killer. Like, dude, we, we're not just, you know, We've we're, we're, we're sticklers for equipment that works, yeah. you know, and, and there are higher end cameras out there. There's no doubt. <clears throat> But ultimately, what I think it comes down to is reliability for these yep. things. And uh, they do work. Been awesome. They yeah. do work. So we're going to give away a Stealth Cam Fusion X. Um, if you want an AT or T or Verizon, whenever we contact the winner, just tell us. We'll ship it right to your house. So it's December, I think. Yep. Yeah, this is Aaron next 16th. week. 16th? This is Christmas week. Merry Christmas. Yeah, just about. Merry Christmas. Are you done Christmas shopping, by the way? I don't know. Probably. Yeah. I quit. <laughs> That was me kicking. You stuff. broke your chair. Yeah, I broke the chair too. Uh, I think I'm done. Man, I'm already. Uh, we kind of talked about this before. I'm already thinking about 2022 management, mm-hmm. dear. In fact, I got a guy coming Monday um, to take a look at opening up about an acre and a half to two acres behind the house yeah. um, for a big food plot there. Are you going to try to get it back out after that 200? <laughs> well, think about this, dude. If he's alive, you've, you've dude, got a, I haven't even seen him. You've got a, a month and a half to get it done. I know. I still got plenty of time. I, and frankly, plenty I like the late season. Um, you know, and I'm also closing on my Ohio place. Who knows? Might see something there before the season's over. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I haven't seen any shooters in Columbus. Like, not a deer. I don't know what's going on. Pressure. Those guys are gun hunting again this weekend. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I've got a ton of deer in Kentucky. That's exciting. But if anything, I really want to try to get Carter to shoot a buck with the with his bow um, before the season's out. I've got lots of bucks coming through there. Yeah, nothing that I'm real excited about. But for future years, you know, for sure. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, speaking of which, these are all pressured deer we're talking about um, at this point in the year. Yeah, for better or worse. For better or for worse, and so we have. I don't know. Uh, some would say maybe the foremost expert in hunting pressured whitetails on the podcast today. <laughs> I hope he doesn't take this as derogatory. Definitely the oldest guest we've had so <laughs> far, right? John looks great. Yeah, and with age comes experience. I can't believe he's 70 years old. He looks great. That's crazy. I would have guessed like early 60s. He's like, I'll saddle my ass up in the tree way before you do. He's definitely still saddle hunting. I love it. So we got John Eberhardt on today. And and anybody that's in whatever, it's Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, all these pressured states, um, John has long been a source of just critical information for finding big bucks on public land. The guy's got an entire wall of Pope and Young bucks 
from uh, Michigan Public Land. Um, and, and again, per what we just said, one of the original saddle guys, like to a T, um, in fact, he has his own signature saddle, mm-hmm. um, I think with tether. Yeah. So, um, and I think an announcement for us today, something pretty he cool. Does. He's he, got an announcement. I, we'll leave it for him, but I know he's going to talk about some kind of a, a cool setup having to do with saddle hunting. Yeah. So, um, this one is our, you know, our tribute to the saddle hunters out there, I would say. And, and the public land pressured deer. Yeah, man. Which uh, most of you guys are... lock wearing, son of a gun. You're better than me. <laughs> That's for damn sure. But um, yeah, excited to have John on. Truly an honor to have this guy on here to, to talk about it. And, you know, we're saying this now because the podcast hasn't been recorded yet. I don't know where we'll end up through this thing. But by the time we come out, our Lead heads us, are going to be spinning, Lead man. Us. Yeah. So <laughs> let's bring in the leader, John Eberhardt. There he is. Oh. Yes. <laughs> Just proofreading. <laughs> Just proofreading some stuff, you know? And I rep for Alan, and I'm looking through their new 20 players. <laughs> you know, seeing what's new. There you go, man. Well, listen, John, uh, Jared and I were just saying, truly appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Um, you know, for our listeners and for ourselves, I mean, we don't know where this podcast is going to go, but I'm sure all of us will have heads spinning after it because, you know, for a long time, if you think about these highly – you know, dense hunter states where the core whitetail guys are, you know, you have been essentially a huge source of information to, you know, lead us all to become more successful hunters. Because the fact is, you know, we're in a way competing against each other in these highly dense states for a limited resource, which would be, you know, a big buck, a mature buck, a Pope and young deer, whatever it might be. Um, And so I think that we're all anxious to kind of be able to pick your brain and, and really understand, you know, your philosophy around being successful in some of these situations. Well, it's my pleasure to be on this podcast and you are absolutely right. Uh, I have hunted in Michigan, which is the most heavily bow hunted state in the country. And we're also a two buck state, which makes it that much worse. Um, for, I've hunted here for 55 seasons, started in the mid sixties and, um, I've hunted in some states out west, you know, went to like uh, Missouri, Iowa, Kansas, Illinois, and it's just a night and day difference. I mean, there's been years in Kansas, I'll see 18 Pope and Young Bucks, whereas in Michigan, I've hunted as many as three years, and, and I'm all, I, everything I do is on public land or free knock-on doors for permission properties, and there's been three years where I haven't seen a Pope and Young Buck you know, during, during both season, and that's hunting two and a half months per, per year. And I'll see 12 to 18, as many as 18 in one week wow. in a campus or an Iowa. Yeah. So, and they're just a lot easier to kill. There's a lot more of them. They're very easy to rattle in and, you know, decoy in. They, they are very susceptible to tactics because the rut's so competitive because there's so many mature bucks and it's just a different world. So I kind of write information out there that blue collar hunters that are hunting public land or small parcels that get pounded to death in PA, West Virginia, New York, Michigan, you know, up in the Northeastern states and the Eastern states where the, you know, that's where the biggest amount of the general population of the country is. And so that's where it gets the most hunting pressure. And I, because I've done it for so many years and I've been really successful. I did not have a mentor growing up. I learned everything on my own, which, you know, I learned by hard knocks. And I always like to pass on that information because 
you know, everybody's got limited time. So if I can shorten people's learning curve, that's my goal. So I, I try to pass on information for hunting pressure deer, which is totally 100% different than hunting, hunting in those other states, you know, like TV guys. You know, even when you go out to Kansas, but when I go out there, I'm hunting on free walk-on properties or free permission or public. And it's super easy compared to Michigan. But yet that's still not even remotely close to what the TV guys are hunting out there when they're on their right. leases. So, yeah. um, but I, you can, I can only imagine that as easy as it is for me to go out there and just hunt regular public properties or free walk-ons. I can only, I can't even fathom, I should say, how easy and simple it would be on managed properties out in those states. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's another world. And until you've done it and you can compare the two, you can't relate to it. Yeah. John, I'm really curious to hear, um, and just like a little bit of background. So Jeremy and I love hearing about why, you know, different guys are, are passionate about different aspects of hunting, period. Whether it's bow hunting or gun hunting or, or public or private land or um, whichever aspect it is that's like most appealing. I think we find that really fascinating to say, man, what, what is it that makes this guy tick? Part two of that is, um, I, I'm, I'm, don't give me too many parts, Ralph. Part, part two. This is, this is all further I take it. I'm curious because I think we know quite a few guys who, you know, whether from the east or from the far west that uh, got a taste of the Midwest, you know, these states that you're talking about, Iowa, Kansas, whatever it is, and they move there. They're like, that's what I want. I'm, I'm going to up and move. So I'm really curious that you kind of went the other direction, whereas it sounds like you know, you, you just dug your heels in a little further in the East Coast. You're like, I'm going to make this work and I'm going to find, you know, how to achieve my passion here. That's a very, very valid point. I've seen that a lot here. Um, people struggle. You know, you watch, you watch TV guys. You know, I know several hunters that had TV shows, very high profile TV mm -hmm. shows. And they've killed 50, 60, 70 Pope and Young Bucks on their shows out West. It's all out West. Right. It's all out west on either, or or else it's on pay to hunt ranches in like yep. Ohio or Indiana or something like that. Yet they've never killed a Pope and Young buck in their own in Michigan. Right. You know, they killed 50, 60, 70 of them out of state, never shot one in Michigan, and they hunted here all their life and most of them on property. Um, so it, it's just so much more difficult. And my passion for bow hunting is not just about the kill. I love going out, sitting in a tree an hour and a half before daylight, watching the sun come up, watching the squirrels come out of their nest, watching a buzzard land on a dead tree out in the middle of the swamp and undo his wings to get the dew off his wings so he can fly away, watching a squirrel make the first tracks in a fresh snow in the morning, um, having owls try and attack my eyes right at the edge of darkness and you have to move out of the way or they take your eyeballs out. I've had that happen three times. Just the whole nature thing and the up close and it's personal. Um, I gun hunted for quite a few years until 1991. I'm 70 years old and uh, I have nothing against it. I probably own 40 guns. I It just lost its luster to me. I just like that up close challenge to get a mature buck up close and personal within 25 yards. Yeah. Um, most of my shots have been 12 to 20. Uh, and I just love that up close and personal thing. And I, I have no interest. I've had, I have had pay to hunt ranches, call me and say, Hey, you can come out here and hunt for free 
in lieu of you saying something nice on your YouTube channel or, you know, in an article, hunting article for deer and deer hunting or something. And there's no way I would do that. That's taking the easy way out. You know, I don't like, I don't like easy. You know, it's like crossbows. Crossbows are easy. I know so many damn hunters that as soon as crossbows were legal, full inclusion in all these states, all uh, you know, yeah, they, they quit using vertical bows because they never have to practice and they double their shooting distance. Yep. Yeah. So I'm not an, I'm not one of those guys that like the easy route. I want to work hard. I want to know that when I kill a mature buck, I earned it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a freebie because anymore, the United States is kind of somewhat turning into a European style hunting where only the wealthy get to hunt and have access to those big pieces of property and those managed lands. Um, you know, and you can buy anything anymore. You know, you just right. buy land, keep everybody off and manage it and grow a lot of big bucks. And just by the odds of bucks on your property, you're going to get your opportunities mm-hmm. like the TV guys. That doesn't interest me in the slightest. Mm-hmm. I want to earn what I kill, you know, whether I have to use a canoe or a waders to cross rivers or cross a lake and drag it out by myself and damn near have a heart attack like I did this year through a swamp. And, you know, I just like to earn things. And I know there's a lot of other guys that do that as well. And like I mentioned, you know, Chad Sylvester from Exodus, he had that phenomenal family property in Ohio and he killed two monster bucks on it. And he abandoned that because public land hunting is becoming so prevalent now. And he went five years without killing a buck when he could have went to that family property and shot a monster buck every year. You know, that's, there's a lot of younger people that like to earn what they kill and older people as well. But that that's kind of the mindset I've always been in. And I just always want to help people become better. Can I start the pod out of the gate? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Uh, so John and, and I kind of, when I, I grew up hunting in Pennsylvania, right? So I, I was one of those guys that, I mean, when I was 12 years old, you know, I could see a herd of 30 doe come through and not a single buck, you know, in the group. And, you know, there were guys everywhere and, and kind of in that same mindset that you had, like I still, especially now with kids, like I still gun hunt, but like I lived a bow hunt, you know, and, and half the time I'd rather it during gun season, I'm still hunting with a bow, even if I'm in Pennsylvania. Um, I think it was 2013 was the first time I went, uh, basically I, I left Pennsylvania and moved away and I hunted, I hunted Kansas. And I remember the first experience out there was like, like, Whoa, this is, this is what deer hunting is different. And it, and it was in a weird way though, because I said, this is what deer hunting is just because it was like overwhelming the amount of bucks and chasing and rutting activity and everything, <laughs> everything you've always dreamed about in Pennsylvania yeah, well, was ha- unfolding right in front of you to John's point. Yeah. yeah. To John's point, kind of what I see on TV. That said, in a in a weird way, you know, and that was what seven eight years ago. Like I've I've almost come back to like I I kind of miss some of the challenge. I say some lightly because there are some things that are frustrating of how I grew up hunting in Pennsylvania. Um, and I don't know if it's because it was easy necessarily because it wasn't every year that I killed a buck. I killed a bunch of bucks out there, um, but ultimately there was something different about it. Um, and, and so I, I lead that question a little bit in that, do you think some of the people who grew up hunting Michigan, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, et cetera, when they go out to the Midwest, do you think that their hunting skills are at, at such a high level that their success is greater? No question about it. Absolutely. Chad Sylvester from Exodus Cameras, uh, he has told me after, after our, that Cribs video, actually, yep. he said, you know what? 
every hunter that I've ever interviewed from Michigan, and usually when he's interviewing somebody from, you know, a PA or a Michigan or New York, they're, they're guys with pretty high standards. They've done well in their home states. Mm-hmm. And he said, all, every one of them, whenever they go out, out west, they always have a very high kill percentage. Hmm. I mean, myself, I've went out 25 times out of state. I've taken 20 Pope and Young Bucks up to 180 inches in 25 trips. And on four of those trips, I could have shot Pope and Young Bucks, but I was I had my criteria set at 140 or 50, depending on this, the year in the state. So 24 out of the 25 one-week trips, I could have killed PNY Bucks. I did on 20 of them, but I could have on four others. I just chose wow. not to something that small and back to your point uh jared i know a lot of guys in michigan there's quite a few that all they do is hunt out of state now they go to ohio they go to indiana they go to i well iowa you can only go every four years but they'll go to nebraska they'll go to the dakotas you know they'll take three or four different weeks and go on different trips and i do know a few that have moved out of state just to kill big bucks and I can't even fathom wrapping my head around live moving just to kill a big bucket. <laughs> There's a lot more to life than that. I, I golf and I, I fish a <laughs> lot. I do a lot of other things. I have a lot of other interests and to yeah. just move someplace and move your family just to kill a buck every year. Usually all those States are one buck States. Yeah. I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. And the guys that have done that, you know, what's interesting mm. when they lived in Michigan, and then they would go out of state and kill a big buck and bring it back. You know, everybody's, wow, man, you're awesome. Blah, blah, blah. Well, when you live out there and you kill 150 inch buck, you ain't squat. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's relative. <laughs> for sure. Yes. Well, that, and that's, that's part of the big appeal for us is we get to bring it back and say like, well, dude, we don't, we don't get this at home. Yeah. And, and so John, right. no, no pressure to convert me. And like, I'm almost ashamed to say I, Jeremy, and I live here in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I haven't bought a tag here in five, six, seven years, <laughs> haven't bought a tag. And yeah. uh, the main reason for that is my, my parents uh, have a farm in eastern central Ohio, which is pretty close to here. And uh, so it's not like I'm heading way out to the Midwest. It's still somewhat pressured ground, but it's just, I just have, we just have a piece You there. have access. I have access there. And for the first time ever, I, you know, I killed a pretty nice, I killed a 170 inch uh, buck in Ohio this year with my bow. And that, thank you. That was the step that, like, as of that moment, I started to feel like I need to, I need to bring it back home. Like, like I started to feel like I, I had set up a situation there that I could replicate, um, yeah. and that gave it kind of gave me the freedom to come back to this, you know, home state of Pennsylvania and start to maybe figure it out. Even though I know it's it's going to be hard. <laughs> that's why I, that's why I'm so curious to understand like your your mindset around like because. Man, frankly, I'm one of those guys that's like, I'll move to Iowa. <laughs> well, like, there's nothing keeping me well, here. That's what I was going to say is like here, and, and obviously not pitting the the opposites here, but here's Jared at 28, here's John at 70. John is telling you there are more things to life than moving out of state to kill a buck. Yeah. Here's you at 28 thinking, like, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, and, and so let's go into that conversation knowing that I, I have no, like, you know, qualms about it. Like, I, I really respect where you're coming from, and so, like, I— you're probably right. You know, as, as let's well, let's say that. I, I will say this about Iowa, because if you did move to Iowa, <laughs> like, well, if it's you Iowa. would get it. You'd get two buck tags every year, as opposed to one every four years. Three. You get <laughs> three. three. Buck tags. Yep. As a landowner. 
Okay, yeah. So uh, so there's that. If if you revolve your entire <laughs> life around deer hunting, yeah, Iowa would be the state to be. For okay, sure. good to know. Yeah, <laughs> jot that down. Yeah, so we record that, send that to your wife. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, we're waiting five years here to drop one tag to go well, out there. I think John makes a good point, and and I want to kind of fishtail into this, not to segment these guys out, but. One of the things, so Jared and I usually go to Kansas every year. This year, we didn't get drawn. And what we've seen even there and in southern Illinois when we were hunting public, too, is the amount of crossbow guys. Like, simply what I think is guys who were gun hunters who said, oh, I can pick up a crossbow and hunt a lot longer and a lot earlier. The amount of guys hunting crossbow has essentially changed Kansas from a pretty much every year state for archery to now you need a preference point to be guaranteed to draw. Um, and, and it'll, in Southern Illinois, I mean, every public parking lot was loaded mostly with crossbow guys. And so it's, it's changed this archery dynamic to where I hunted archery because there were less people. I did have more time, but it was less pressure. I could get in there to now every parking lot on public, especially is full, full guys. Yeah. Hunting public has lent a lot to that too. The hunting public guys have really popularized hunting public land. They've made it. They've made it cool mm-hmm. to hunt public land and kill a ninety-inch, two and a half-year-old. No doubt. Yeah. Um, and also, what you said with the full inclusion crossbows, I was very involved in that in Michigan. The NRC, our Natural Resources Commission, uh, Ten Point was after them big time. And, uh, uh, Chuck Jordan was the national sales manager for Ten Point at the time, and they knew if they could get Michigan to topple the full inclusion crossbow that the rest of the states would fall in line like dominoes because we were the biggest bow hunting state. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. And uh, it has really changed gun hunter numbers in Michigan and every other state that has full inclusion crossbow, because exactly what you said, Jeremy, gun hunters bought crossbows and they get to hunt during nice weather. They actually get to watch social activity instead of you're trying to find a place to hide. Yep. And they're filling their tags before gun season. So they're not gun hunting. So yeah, that's filling up public lands and private lands as well because gun hunters are converting crossbows. And there's a lot of hunters that didn't like to practice and they're shooting crossbows now because they never have to practice and they can shoot a lot farther. I, yeah. I, I can't, even, I had so many friends, oh yeah, I'm an avid go hunter. I've never shoot crossbows. As soon as full inclusion came around, they, they bought their, you know, <laughs> Ravens and 10 points and they never have to practice. Never look now back. They can, <laughs> 70 yards instead of 30. I watched a video of a guy with his 13 year old daughter shoot a bucket, 83 yards with a Raven crossbow. He filmed the whole thing. He had a lit knock, no wind, big nine point out in the hayfield. And that's bow hunting. So John, I want to kind of fish tail this back to your, obviously you've been bow hunting these kind of places and these deer for a long time. Talk about maybe some of the evolution. I think our listeners would be really cool from even like, you know, I grew up hunting in the 90s and early 2000s. I started in the 90s, you know, and but my my family had hunted 60s, 70s, 80s. I was born in the 90s. Yeah. So there you go. (laughs) So, But I, I really would like to know more from your side, John, in terms of like, were there periods in like the 80s or even early 90s where you're like, wow, this was like, this was the pinnacle. Like there were so many deer. I could find mature bucks. Archery wasn't as popular as it was and then even translating to now to talking about all-inclusive crossbows like i have to imagine it's more difficult for what you are trying to do right uh the crossbows puts more hunters in during both season which makes it more difficult but it was 
far more difficult in the 70s and 80s. Okay. Far, not even remotely close. Because back in the 70s, we had a lot, ton of deer. When I moved up north in 1972, I moved up north because there was a lot of deer in northern Michigan, and I hated living by Detroit. Wait a minute. Did I just hear you say you moved to a place because there's a lot of deer there? <laughs> I did. Well, my primary That didn't take long. <laughs> I, I hated living near Detroit. Well, we can't believe okay, yeah, 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 we, we understand that. Yeah. <laughs> and I had the opportunity to move north, so I did. Uh, hmm. Yeah, the deer had something to do with it, but I wanted out of, I wanted out of Detroit and working in those little shithole factories. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I, I, I do have to say one thing about crossbows really quick. You know, crossbows have their place. They for have sure. their place for people with health issues or that can't draw enough poundage because they're too old or too young or whatever. So when I say yeah. I have issues with crossbows, it's just for healthy, healthy sure. people. I, I mean, my, understood. my six and nine-year-old both shoot crossbow, and it's it's an amazing way to get them involved to where Absolutely. they can't effectively kill a bow with a, a compound bow right now. Can't pull enough weight. Well, what was the question you asked me a second ago? Well, no, no, wait, wait, wait. And before we go to that, I'm curious. When you said you were involved earlier with Michigan's, like, uh, the rollout of the crossbow with the all-inclusion rule, were you advocating for in, in favor of that? Oh. Like, <laughs> against? No. Okay. I, I actually wrote a petition. I, I almost see. got fired from my job. I wrote a petition. I had the top 38 sporting goods stores in the state sign it yeah. because – I mean, when you look at a crossbow, it's like this. A crossbow is like a baseball cap. It's a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. So if you're an archery pro shop or you're a large independent selling guns, bows, and stuff, um, you know, consumers that are getting into bow hunting, they have to come in. They have to be fit. They yeah. have to they have the right draw length, the right poundage, the right arrows, yeah. the right spline, the right broadheads for flight. There's a lot of things that re- that revolve around, you know, the being somebody you need a technician to line you up with everything mm-hmm. a crossbow you buy it and you buy some bolts and you go shoot it mm-hmm. it's a one size fits all so obviously when i knew that when crossbows if they became legal for everybody the mass merchants were going to sell the most because they buy the most product therefore 100%. they get it at the lowest price therefore they can sell it at the lowest retail yeah so it was going to hurt independent retail stores where you could go in and talk to somebody that actually knew something about a product right uh, so I had issue with that. And I just also had issue with a crossbow bow season was implemented for a reason. It was implemented for people that shot bows that had to practice to stay good and shoot good. It wasn't for something you shoulder and pull the trigger and you hold out of a front stock like a gun. That's yeah. not what it was designed for. I mean, anybody that says there's no difference between a crossbow and a vertical bow is insane. It's <laughs> obvious, right. Yeah, so, uh, you know, me and Bob Eastman, who owned Eastman Outdoors, who they own Gorilla Tree Stands and Carbon Express, you know, we were trying to get, we were trying to appease them so there would be some middle ground and maybe do 55 years and older across the counter. Yeah, or a limited series or something like that, or a limited season, rather. Or a limited season after gun season, not a limited season during bow season. Right. You know, they always, they were trying to save your thing. Well, there's a lot of avid crossbow shooters out there. That's BS. Kind of there are not a lot of avid. I have never seen a crossbow. <laughs> that's a, that's okay. an oxymoron, an avid crossbow <laughs> hunter. Yeah. I've seen tons of vertical bow leagues, and every archery shop has a, a bow league. Yeah. yeah. So, and a lot of those went by the wayside because so many people are converting crossbows. But anyway, that's another topic. It's done. It's over. Yeah. It is what yeah. It is. We're in it. Yep. So, 
So my question was, and you were getting into it, John, you moved <clears throat> in what, 72, you said you moved from Detroit to the yes. north. Yes. And, okay. and even though you had a lot of deer, it was yeah. harder. Yes, because this. Nowadays, there are a pretty high percentage of bow hunters, and you three sitting there are probably prime examples of this. Mm-hmm. You guys are passing up deer. Yes. Back in the 70s and 80s, if it had three-inch spikes, I don't care who you were. You were That buck was getting shot at. Mm-hmm. In 1978, statistically, I'm a big stats guy. You know, I, I'm not I'm not bloviating with BS. I, I'm a stats guy. In 1978, I talked to the DNR, and two percent of bow hunters killed an antlered buck with a bow in Michigan. Two percent. Now it's almost thirty percent. Wow. So, and we had a million gun hunters. We had almost a million gun hunters. Every wow. Year. And they shot every damn antlered buck that they could see. Yeah. So we just didn't have the mature bucks they have now. It wasn't even remotely close if you shot a two and a half year old 85 inch eight point you could very possibly win the the cities or the county's buck contest yep i mean very there just were not the bucks there are now now you have a lot of guys that manage their property they got kill criterias guys were a lot of guys are passing up almost everybody passes up year and a half olds anymore and a lot of guys pass up two-year-olds and some pass up three mm-hmm. so there's just a lot bigger bucks now than that did not used to exist. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't necessarily that it was, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s that it was lack of deer. It was just a lack of selection in that, that, you know, you saw that spike three, you know, three inch spike came through. He died. Oh, I shot at anything that had three inch spikes of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Makes yes. sense. Do you think that, um, who, I guess this isn't a loaded question either. Who, in your opinion, has led to hunters? basically deciding the pass box do you think it's the state do you think it's tv guys do you think it's other people well i think the tv guys laid that they did yep tv guys back in the mid 90s they came on and they were shooting big bucks then everybody you know after a while everybody wants to kill bigger bucks because that's what they see the tv i mean god i talk to kids nowadays that are 20 years old and they've never killed a buck because they don't want to shoot anything unless it's 125 if you're in michigan and you're on public land you yeah. may never shoot a buck for the rest of your life yeah. if yeah. you put up 25 as a criteria because that's what they see on TV or on Facebook. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I worry about that. You know, I've got young kids and I've talked to a lot of other ones who have older kids than I do, John, in that, you know, I worry about that in that when I hunted, like first year I killed was a button buck, then I killed a spike, then I killed an eight point. But, and I mean, we're talking one and a half year old, two and a half year olds. Like I, I worry that that kind of training progressed me to always want something bigger or older or more challenging, whatever you want to put it to today. You know, some of these guys are walking onto manicured 280 acre farms that they're hunting multiple one fifties, you know, and, and where do you go? Like if let's just say I'm 18 years old and I go out and I'm killing one fifties with my bows and one sixties with my, where do you go from there? You, you don't, <laughs> you just keep killing those bucks. I yeah. mean, that's, you know what the uh you did it right you did the natural progression you that's just how it was oh, i didn't even yeah. have a choice that's just how it was when i grew up you know yeah, you, you, yeah. you 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 killed a small buck and you progressed up yeah you know the whole you know i i look at sports icons you look at tom brady you look at phil nicholson tiger woods uh, lebron james michael phelps you know those guys 
those guys all became sports icons of whatever sport they were involved in by competing against people in middle school mm-hmm. and then going to high school. And if they were good enough in high school, they got a scholarship to college, sports scholarship. And if they were good enough in college, then they got drafted into the, the pros. And then if they were standouts in the pros, then they be, they hit that icon status. Mm-hmm. But one thing they all have in common, they, to reach that icon status, they all played against everybody else on the same football, field, the same baseball times, the same golf courses. They, they got that good by competing against other people in the hunting industry. That is not the case. TV guys, there's probably 30% of all the bow hunters in the country could go to Wachowski's or Lee and Tiffany and, or Drury's property and kill bucks equally what they kill, if not better, but you couldn't take those guys and put them on public land. They wouldn't kill squat because they have no clue how to hunt pressure deer. So, you know, sports icons have earned it against competition throughout their career. A lot of the icons in the hunting industry have not earned it because they've never killed anything where they had to compete against anybody. That's one thing I like to do. I like to compete. That's way that way. When I kill something nice, I know I killed it against competition. That's the draw of bowling pressure. That's very property. interesting. I think it's, a, I mean, it's a valid point. It's, it's why I said about, you know, coming from different States or even again, and it's kind of just the way I was. We talked about this earlier. I came out of college. I didn't have anywhere to hunt. So what did I do? I went and hunted hard on public land and tried to kill mature bucks on public land. It was just, that was the natural progression. And I think that, you know, where I get concerned about my own kids is like, you know, they hunt a lot of the land that I have access to, whether I own it or lease or whatever. And it's like, they don't, they don't read sign. Like I had to read sign or even when I'm hunting a non-pressure deer, like I'm picking up on sign just cause that's how I trained myself over the last 20 plus years. And they're like, they don't even know what I'm looking at. Well, I've, and I've never, yeah, I've I never, heard. I've never heard it explained that way, John. And like, if, if I could feedback like a, a, using the same analogy or whatever, I've always thought of like the competition being between myself and, and the animal. And like, you know, it's a different animal maybe from year to year or it's a different, you know, setting based on what farm we're doing this. And like the, the human element would essentially be like, if I'm playing a video game, like my kid nephew coming in and like smacking the controller while I'm trying to like have the competition as opposed to like, I'm competing with, other people like I up until if this point to, if you want to personally set goals for yourself and compete you know set goals where you're competing against yourself to try and kill a specific animal that's that's a little bit different yeah. but then when you when you kill several monster animals in yeah. success in successive years you know one year after the other like tv guys that don't form five years they go to so many different states yeah. You know, and they post them on TV. They got their TV shows. You know, they become because they get so many followers. Oh, you're so awesome! Blah blah blah. But in reality, half the bow, nearly half the bow hunters in the country, could do the same thing on the same property. Yeah. So because they have zero competition, yeah. so they're not competing against a specific deer for personal reasons. They're doing it because they've reached that area of, yeah. of notoriety where they think they're awesome hunters. And, you know, all these other people are feeding their egos. So that's why they post. Well, and probably where Jeremy and I would be like blinded to that perspective is like, it's, 
that's not under our belt. Like we haven't killed a bunch of monsters in successional years to the point where we're like, okay, anybody can do this. Like we, we Mm -hmm. can do this. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, you know, if when asked honestly, you know, some of those guys, the Lukoskis, the juries, you know, whoever you want to point to, it's like, you know, is that enough at some point? You know, it's just, is the challenge of, you know, a, a new animal, because each animal has individual characteristics and mannerisms and stuff. Like, is, is that enough to keep it fresh with the same weapon on? There's got to be, yeah, there's got to be a fine line there, though. Because, I yeah. mean, um, the one thing. You got to keep in mind, that's their living. Well, living. See, yeah, and that interferes with a fair answer. And, and so. I guess where I'm at on it is, I, I my dad still tells me this to this day. He's like, man, if you, I don't care what deer it is. Like if you shoot a deer and you're not like shaken, worked up, excited, you know, we all get the shakes after we shoot a deer or whatever that you're just, if you lose that feeling, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And I would have to say, I'm, I can't speak for them, but I bet a lot of those guys don't feel that anymore. You're absolutely right. And I, and I'm in the industry. I know a lot of these guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and I'm, um, obviously I don't know guys I mentioned or I wouldn't have said that but I you know I've, I've got a good real good friend I've known for 40 years he had one of the highest profile archery shows on TV and he lives in Michigan and he's killed I think 58 or more you know Pope and Young Bucks um on when he had his TV show and he owns 80 acres in Michigan he's I don't think he's ever shot 120 inch buck in Michigan in his life yeah right your life now he's retired from the TV show and he said, I enjoy hunting on my property and trying to kill a three-year-old buck on my property way more than any of those monster bucks. Hmm. So I think that ties into your comment there, Jared, because like there, even though like I, we do hunt a lot of public, but we also have our own private access and that private isn't, I don't want to say spoiled, but it isn't to this level where I'm hunting multiple 150s every year. Like if I see a mature buck on my property, regardless of score, like that is, that is the win for me. Like that's the one I'm going after. We haven't had, we don't have those properties again, no knock to whoever it is, but I don't own a thousand acres in Iowa that I have multiple booners even running on, you know, like I've never even seen that before. I can't relate to how that would even feel. Um, versus like, yeah, we have a, like I own a property, but if I kill a three-year-old on my Pennsylvania property, like I'm learning quickly now that this is what my expectation should be mm-hmm. on that property. I had a guy, I had a gentleman in the industry and I have no idea why he did this. He came to one of my workshops this spring. Um, I had one in May because of COVID. I only had one. And, uh, during the seminar day, which was Sunday, he actually said to the class, um, he hunted a property, I think it was in Southern Illinois, a managed property, and he saw four booners in one set, four Jeez. different birds. And this was not an enclosure. This was just a managed piece of property. And I know I had a good friend that owned 320 acres in Iowa, and, um, and on his property, they wouldn't flip the bow off the hook unless it was 170 inches. You know, and I may be, I'm a little hypocritical myself because I, what, you know, I love going out there. I love going out there because there's so many, everybody likes to see big bone. Yeah. But I, but I, I know where my roots are. My roots are hunting pressured property here and trying to kill the best property, I, you know, the best buck on the property. And, you know, my standards are way lower here than out there. People always should look at where they're hunting and put their expectations their expectations should not be beyond what that property 
can produce. No yeah. doubt. Well, and I think to your TV point, that's been the fatal flaw is if I'm a, I'm like growing up and, you know, back in the nineties and stuff, it was TNN, the Nashville network, right? That was Sunday nights. That's when the, the shows were on and stuff, but you watch these shows and, and guys on those shows would go and kill you know, 180 inch deer in Kansas or Texas or wherever. And I'm sitting in Pennsylvania. I'm like, man, like maybe I shouldn't be shooting that. And it's like, no, dude, like those don't exist right now around you. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Those do not exist. <laughs> but we got, we got in our head that like, oh, like these guys are, to John's point, the icon. Like if I want to be an icon, which I did, I wanted to, at least I thought I did. Mm -hmm. Like then I need to go, like I have to kill 170 and 80 inch deer. But the problem is that expectation was nowhere close to realistic during that time frame where I was and what I was hunting. That, that's one thing that is, to talk about myself, I guess, for a minute, that's one thing that has got me to the place I am. Um, I have never allowed killing a big buck to overtake what I want to pass on to other hunters. You know, I, how can I put this into words? Um, I, I, get, I get lots of opportunities to go places, you know, even on Facebook they'll invite me to their property in Illinois or Iowa. And I don't do that. I don't take advantage of my position. I wrote three books on bow hunting pressure property, produced instructional DVDs. YouTube's all about hunting pressure property. I've uh, got 53 book bucks, you know, 33 from Michigan, 20 from out of state. Everything's been off free permission, public or walk on. And I, I do not cross that line. And it is so easy for most hunters, once they get a little bit of notoriety and they get offers to go places where it's much easier, they do that. And I know that bow hunting is such an egotistical activity that as soon as I would go on a pay to hunt place or something that's managed and kill a big buck and post it and say it was off managed property or something like that. Oh, well, John, you know, John's just, you know, probably most of his deer came yeah. off managed property. Legacy's you know? out the window. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you, I, I have stood by what I've preached, uh, tried to be as honest as I can and try to pass on as much good information. Um, and that's kind of what I, I have done. And it, it hasn't been easy. I will say that because there's a lot of offers <laughs> where, you know, you can go in three days and kill a 150 inch deer. And I, I never do that. I never take them on. Hmm. So, John, I, I guess, and this is something that we had a discussion uh, on our last podcast with an, a couple different guests about that kind of intrigues me is obviously you moved up to the north. You know, you, you, you started hunting there. Uh, for a lot of people, they hunt public land simply because there is no access to anything else, right? If they want to hunt, the only yeah. place they can hunt is public, right? They don't have relations. They, maybe they don't knock on doors or they got turned down, whatever it might be. Um, for you and, and maybe talk us through the transition in your career to where you are now, has it always been like, I just want to hunt these pressured deer or at one point in time, was it, well, this is my only option to hunt. No, I've always wanted to hunt pressured deer. Interesting. I have always wanted to hunt pressured deer. I've never, I've never wanted the easier route out. When I first, you know, when I was like 13, I walked into this archery shop in Ypsilanti, Michigan, Southern Michigan, and, and there was the owner of the shop was standing in there shooting his recurve because that's obviously in the 60s, that's all I had. Um, 
and he was like hitting a three inch bullseye at 20 yards every time. And we were the only two in the building. And I, I, I said, do you whitetail hunt? Do you hunt for whitetails? Cause I was always enamored by whitetails. I don't mm-hmm. know why, because nobody in my family hunted. I self-taught. And he said, yeah. And I said, man, you must kill a lot here. And he said, son. And back then in Southern Michigan, there wasn't a lot of deer. Okay. There was a lot in Northern Michigan, but not in Southern Michigan. Just like back in the sixties, there wasn't hardly any deer in Kansas and yeah, Iowa. Right. Southern Illinois and a big farm country. And he's, he said, uh, son, I've shot at six, six deer, deer, not butts, just deer. Mm-hmm. They've all been closer than that target. And I've yet to touch the first one. He said, you put fur on it and I just lose it. And what you said, Jeremy, a while ago, when you get to the point where you don't get nerved up when you're shooting at a deer, you need to raise your criteria or something because that that should always be there that i hadn't shot a buck in michigan three seasons and this year i killed two book bucks in michigan and the first one i was rattled big time i mean <laughs> i was shaking <laughs> i mean i got a tremor i shake naturally but i mean i was way beyond my <laughs> worse than usual yes That's yeah funny. and i had not seen a shooter buck in michigan in three full seasons wow but john yeah. I, I think this question might help me wrap my head around some of the stuff we've been talking about here. What is your goal? You know, I guess, as it relates to the animal, is it, a, is it an age class? Is it a, an antler class? Is it just a book, a book buck or yeah. what are you looking for out of that experience? I don't look at age class. I I'm an antler guy. I know a lot of managed property guys, you know, they, they per age class. Yeah. Um, but I, I look at bucks that try, you know, I try to shoot at bucks that are going to make, make what that's, that's my goal. Now in Northern Michigan, my, my, uh, criteria is a little bit lower because up in Northern Michigan, we got a lot of sandy soil. Yep. You know, it may take, I've shot five-year-olds up here that were dressed up 220 pounds. They had 105 inch rat. Right. Uh, We just don't get big antlers up here. Uh, Southern Michigan is a little bit better. So my criteria in Northern Michigan is a little lower than what it would be in Southern Michigan. And then when I go to Kansas or Iowa or Missouri, my standards go up to 150. So like in your part of Michigan, would you say you're hunting primarily permission or public? I'd say it's about 50, 50 public. Uh, This year I shot one on public and one on private in Michigan. And then the one I shot in Kansas was on free walk on property. Okay. Walking. And so would you say like you're fairly tied to those places that you have access and within those areas, you're just looking for the best antlered buck you can find in either of those locations yes i'm hunting what i would presume would be you know one of the bigger bucks on the property and i as far as private i've probably had over my hunting career i would say in michigan alone probably a hundred different parcels of private because you're always getting it and losing it. You know, the kids grow yeah. up and they want to hunt it or you kill a big buck and the property owner shows a picture to somebody and then somebody else that's a friend or relative wants to hunt it and you're out. And so in, in, when you're hunting free walk or I mean free permission, you're always losing and gaining, you know, trying to gain new. And as far as public, uh, you know, there's a lot of public lands I've scouted in Michigan where I would never set foot on it because the property was just not conducive for a mature buck daytime activity. Yeah. Um, you know, so the property dictates whether I would even hunt it or not. I think so, that's a, so interesting. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, Jared and I talk about it all the time, and and I love that now our, some of our listeners are actually catching on. Is like you can't kill Big Buck if he's not there, right? So and when you talk or, about, I, I guess not only if he's not there. Let me interrupt you for a second. No, go for not it. only if he's not there, you can't kill him if he is there, but the property is not conducive for daytime movements. Interesting. Yeah. So what fair. do you pose the question? What do you do in that scenario? Like, if you know he's not there and that property is not conducive for daylight, do you just not hunt him? I mean, if I know he is there. And oh, yeah, property, I'm sorry. Correct. Uh, yeah, I just abandon the property. Wow. Because yeah, there's lots of public. Yeah, it's got it's to gotta have the right security cover. Because uh, mature bucks, when you're in a pressured area, everything revolves around security cover. Yep. A buck is not going to walk through open timber during daylight hours, unless he's with a hot dog. Mm-hmm. He's just not going to do it. Uh, so you could have a primary scrape area from hell over here let's say over here and then you've got 200 yards of open timber and then there's a swamp over here which is where that buck is going to be bedding it's a waste of time hunting that scrape area during daylight hours because that buck is not going to leave that bedding area and walk through that open timber to that scrape area during daylight or he's not going to come to that he's not going to early in the morning just before daylight or right at crack of daylight he's not going to work that scrape area and then go through that open yep. timber, you know, in dawn after dawn in the morning. Yeah. So if it's not conducive for, if it doesn't have this proper transition security cover from the bedding area to the scrape area or to the white oaks or to an apple tree, if it doesn't have the proper transition security cover from a bedding area to a destination location, it's worthless for daytime hunting in a pressured area. So Out west, it's totally different. They'll walk across. I've seen them walk across two inch. Oh, yeah. wheat fields. Yeah. So, but in that scenario, I assume you're saying that because you've got a finite amount of time to hunt. So why waste time hunting a deer that you feel you can't kill? Exactly. Interesting. I'm just so intrigued by, and so for reference, you, your mindset is the same as my uncle's who was like probably my biggest bow hunting inspiration. That's because he listened to John all as the time I was coming up. up. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's right. And so to this day, my uncle and I butt heads like you wouldn't believe. And he's like my best friend. So like it's it's very it's a positive thing. But, you know, this property that we hunt in eastern central Ohio is my folks place. And he is very like, hey, I will take, you know, the best antlered buck that this that I can get off of this place. So he's like, you know, going out and getting new ground is not really an option. And uh, it's not really about age for him. You know, he's, I'm going to look for the best antler buck on that farm. That's what he wants. And it's, it's just really interesting because I'm not that way, you know, and there's a lot of overlap here because I understand, as I know you and my uncle does too, that like age equals antler size. I understand that not all old bucks have big antlers, but generally speaking, you know, a, a buck is going to show what he's got at four, five, six years old. Absolutely. It's not yep. debated necessarily. That's Although there are, there are variations. It goes up and down. But, mm-hmm. And so, and I've had some some influence by, like Midwest Whitetail was a show that like I got into when I was in my late teens, early yep. 20s. I, I was inspired by that show. And, you know, Bill, who we've had on the podcast, is someone who hunts for, for age class. And to me, and managed properties, yep, yep. 100% yep. in Iowa. Yeah. Only <laughs> Iowa. He doesn't leave Iowa. His home farm managed 100%. Yes. To me, that that made a lot of sense because, 
you know, if you were to say, well, if you kill a, a 120, like, what's next? A 130. Okay, then a, a 140. Eventually, you run out, you know, and it's hard, it's hard to continue on that path. Whereas, you know, I see if I set the goal as a mature buck, regardless of antler size, uh, it's a very high bar. First of all, it's, it's tough to kill that, you know, in, in a lot of different parts of the, the country. But I don't feel like I have to continue to press it. Like, you can't go from four to five to there is an end there do you know what i mean and so i found myself like settling into that that pool i guess if you can't bill winky's opportunity opportunity options are in top one percent of the country Mm -hmm, sure okay he's got lots and lots of opportunities so so uh, i could see somebody like him doing that i believe he I think he hunted in Michigan one year and he didn't Yeah, well, he he's originally he has or lived in Michigan for a long time. That's where yeah, Pam's from. Know, his yeah. life. I remember right. I don't even think he You're killed a 100 buck. I don't even think he killed a 100 inch buck when he was <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not. And and Bill's a super humble guy. I mean, he'll be the first one to tell you like, yeah, I'm hunting managed ground that, you know, he spends well, a lot of time doing. And to that point, I I feel like maybe you kind of fell into what I said earlier, which is you're watching Bill Winky and what Bill's doing and saying, oh, I should be able to do this on my farm. And we now know that you can. Well, see, and this is where John and I took different paths here. And I don't think either one of them is right or wrong. But, like, and there's a whole class of guys that will say, all right, I'm going to go with what the land can give me. You know, the best antler or whatever your goal is. And I'm just stubborn, I guess, to where I'm like, well, no, I'm not gonna, good I'm going to force it. My goal is to kill a mature buck. And so I'm going to go and do whatever I have to do. To, if, if that's go to get permission 10 minutes down the road or move to Iowa, you know, that's. Mm. Well, so I was going to ask John, just because I think there's a way that this kind of intersects t- together is John, how many, how many bucks would you say your book box just in ballpark that were, I guess, three and under, would you say there's a large chunk of them or were most of them over three? I doubt any of them were under three. I think they were all three and a half were over three. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's what I was. I just, think, and I don't think they're. I mean, in Michigan, if you kill a one twenty five, it's got to be at least four years old. What, you know, what were you like, hoping that would in Northern out? Michigan? Three and a half year old bucks up here don't have one hundred twenty five inches. So he's killing mostly four and older deer, which is uh-huh. where you're well, at. Now. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So you, when I go out west, though, well, yeah, different. But yeah, I can, exactly, track. exactly. I'm just talking about where where John is at. He's essentially, even though he's looking at it from a book perspective and antler size he's pretty much killing the same thing that you're killing from an age perspective by default yeah the fact that those antlers are smaller it forces you into that age class different if he was obviously in iowa or kansas or something because yeah we will all see 150 inch three-year-old and i I also think i mean and i may be wrong bill would have to correct me if i'm wrong but i think most managed people let people come in and call you know inferior genetic antlered bucks so typically when they're hunting, when the owner of the managed property is hunting for a specific age class, they're going to have big, big antlers because mm-hmm. they've been calling the inferior antler bucks out of there via letting somebody else come in and kill, kill, kill. Deer. Yep. Or call, I think he does do that. Up. Yeah. Well, I think a lot, of, depending on property side, I think a lot of people do because obviously you can't just not kill bucks. You know, if you just don't kill bucks, eventually you end up with a five-year-old six point that just beats the hell out of every other buck on the property, yes. you know? Yeah. Well, and that's the benefit to Iowa. Bill's got three tags, so he'll shoot, yep. you know, there was a year probably he shot a 200 inch buck 
a 175 and probably like a you know 140 135 whatever it was yeah. you know Kalba compared mm-hmm. to his biggest mm-hmm. yeah I think it's oh. in, I think it's interesting how those kind of gum, come together the other thing that and you know we talked to Don Higgins not too long ago is John from my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong you know when the season opens if you've got a chance at a buck you go after it right yes where like mean, I'm not the type of guy that goes out there and looks for deer yeah I'm, I'm pretty much a sign hunter but if I know there's a big buck in a specific area yeah I go I definitely go after it. I knew wow. there was a big buck on the private property I shot in Michigan this year mm-hmm. and I shot him on the third day of season I rattled him in out of the standing cornfield wow so I was after that deer and I, and I say that, you know where I'm going. Well, cause wh- the, where my mind went <clears throat> was, do you know Don Higgins? <clears throat> I know who he is. Yeah. Well, so when you said that, my mind went to what he, you remember what he said? He's like, I don't look at sign at all. N- none. He's like, I just, I know what buck is there and, I, and I'm going to kill it based on terrain. He's I got just, cameras everywhere and he's hunting managed property. Well, I think yeah, that's the next logical question is, uh, wh- what role do like cameras play in your, in your strategy? Not <clears throat> a lot. I put out cameras now probably prior to four or five years ago, I never used cameras in Michigan. I mean, every location I hunt out of state mm-hmm. has yeah. a camera. Right. I mean, I actually put a camera at a hunting location out okay. of state, every single one. And we hunt me and my boys when we're in Kansas, we hunt according to what's on the camera, kind right. of like Don Higgins is doing it. I'm sure Bill Winky's doing mm-hmm. that is just so simple to do. I mean, that takes, very minimal hunting skill, in my opinion. It's freaking hard for me, John. I'm having a tough time with it over here. Well, if you got cameras and you got bucks that are coming in on a consistent time frame, then you know if you go sit in a specific stand, you're going to have that opportunity more than likely, other yeah. than during the peak rut when, you know, they're going to be with those and all rhythms and, you know, routines go out the window. Yeah. Uh, but typically, you know, during pre-rut, they're on a pretty healthy routine and early season, they're on a routine. So, you know, if you own managed property and you have zero competition like those guys do, uh, yeah, there's no reason you shouldn't be able to kill the big, biggest bucks on your property every year because you can put cameras out that you tolerate a lot of human odor because there's, you know, Don or Bill is out on the property a lot. They, they tolerate their odor. They tolerate their intrusions. Uh, basically, they never get shot at until they hit that kill criteria, which is three or four years old. So any interactions they've had with those guys growing up, has been no consequences, so they have no reason to change their movement habits during the daylight hours. It's a totally different game. Yeah. Totally, one hundred percent different. Those guys have zero competition, just like the sports icons. You know, if I was the only quarterback in the NFL, even at my size, I'd be the best one, wouldn't? I? Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting that you say because I mean, obviously, when I grew up, I don't know where when you started hunting, did you have trail cameras like right away? No. So, like, obviously, for most of my growing up, like, trail cameras didn't exist. Um, and so, you know, I was kind of forced to read sign and, you know, look at track size and be like, okay, this is a this is obviously a big buck tracker. This is a small buck track and stuff. So, John, I, I, I look at that as, like, the buck that you killed this year that you rattled out of the cornfield. Spotting is how we did it. In PA, we could yep. drive around in spotlight. Spotlight, yeah. yep. Um, you knew I there did were, that a lot in the 70s and 80s. Though. Yeah, yeah. You you knew there was a buck there, did you? But you didn't really know how big of a buck. You just knew he was probably a big buck. 
No, I had him on camera. You I did camera. have him on camera. Okay. So you knew. I didn't have a camera out at my tree where I was hunting, right. but I had a camera just as an inventory keeper. So, and so from that inventory keeper, you were able to say, okay, this is the, this is the buck I want to kill on this property. Yes. There, I, I put that camera on a, a scrape area, like in that probably early September when I, as soon as I, as soon as I found the scrape on my speed three season speed tour, I put a camera on it. And then I got a picture of him, and then that's the buck I pursued. And then I killed him on my first hunt, and that's fine. Do you find that you kill a lot of your bucks on the first hunt? Uh, usually the first sits the best at a specific location. But typically, typically when I'm hunting, I over the years, I haven't known what's there. I'm hunting the best sign. You know, I'm looking for rubs that are, you know, really high up on the tree, or I'm looking at primary scraper. And again, everything has to revolve around the adequate security cover at the kill location. And it has to have adequate transition security cover to a known bedding area. So I hunt sign. And I think people that hunt in the normal blue collar way and on public land and stuff like that, they have to hunt sign. Right. You can't hunt just cameras because you just can't do it. It just doesn't work. It's, yeah. it's totally 100% night and day different from management. Well, and I think even on some managed property from the camera, we've talked about this on this podcast before, like a ton, sometimes I rely too heavily on my cameras and frankly, I miss a ton of opportunities, right? Because I'm literally hoping the deer walks in front of this camera to say, okay, he's there at this time. Meanwhile, the last four days, he could walk right behind the camera. Yeah. Yeah, you it don't depends know. on where you're putting your camera. See, typically, you know, when you find scrapes early in the year, and I'm a big, over 50% of the bucks I've shot, have been at a at a scrape area, wow. a primary scrape area where there's multiple scrapes. Wow! And so when you find those scrape areas, if you put a camera on them and you put the camera up in a place where the deer are not going to see it, you know, maybe ten feet up in the tree, a different tree shining on that camera. Um, typically, scrapes will give you a really good inventory of what's there. Now, if you just have a camera on, let's say. Uh, some sort of a let's say it's at a white oak or something yeah and you got to yeah. if you put a camera low where a deer can visually see it you know i, I honestly think big bucks will avoid them in pressured areas sure obviously sure. on don higgins property and bill Lincoln's probably property they don't right because they've sure. never had any they've never had any consequences for three or four or five years mm -hmm. until they get shot yeah so they they when there's no consequences there's no reason to change your pattern do you put scent in your scrapes? I never use scents. I never use commercial scents. I may take a tarsal that I've cut off a deer and rub it in a scrape because, you know, is a buck scent. Yeah. Interesting. I, I don't buy commercial scents. I I used to rep for tinks and I, so I could get all my stuff for free and I never used any of that stuff because it's bottled and it has bacteria in it and it doesn't smell quite the same. So I, I like my locations to work on the merits I chose them for. I don't like boogering them up with commercial stuff because everybody, when you're on, that's another thing. When you're on pressured land, everybody's using scents. So you want to do things opposite of what your competition's doing because deer catch, mature deer catch on to that. They've listened to rattling. They've listened to faulty rattling. They've had experiences with decoys or faulty scents or calling, you know, where somebody's doing a grunt call every five minutes. And they, they just know they've been there, done that. And they just know when, when to respond to things or when not. Yeah. Uh, how about mock scrapes? 
Do you ever put those in? And if so, I guess, how would you do so without, you know, scent? I think mock scrapes work very, very well. Um, I've done it in the past, but I live so far. My closest hunting spot is like 40 minutes from my house. Okay. So I really don't have time to do that stuff. If I lived close by, I would definitely use mock scrapes for yeah. sure. And, yeah. and mock scrapes should always be put where you're seeing a lot of doe activity because okay. that's that's where they're going to do the best. Okay. Um, can we circle back just to, you know, talk about reading sign? And uh, can you care to elaborate just on what exactly you're looking for and, and how you're using that information? Uh, when I'm look okay, I do a, what's called a preseason speed tour. I've heard of this. I, okay, so I do all of my scouting and location preparation. It's always done by the end of April in the spring. Okay. okay. Even, even going back to my older locations, you know, re, re-grooming the shooting lanes if it's on private property, even on public property. You know, when you groom your shooting lanes in the spring and then when you go back and hunt it in the fall, you know, if somebody came by and said, well, you're not supposed to cut shooting lanes. Well, I didn't cut them. Somebody cut them six months ago. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously you know? it wasn't me. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I re-groom all my stuff and it's all done by the end of April. And then I do these speed tours. And I always do the speed tours after September 20th because Michigan's bow opener is October 1. Uh, most of your two-and-a-half-year-old and older bucks are rubbed out by September 5th at the very latest. Yep. Um, so they've had two-and-a-half weeks to lay sign, you know, buck rubs, possibly scrapes or whatever. So when I do my speed tour, what I'm doing is I'm checking – my old primary scrape areas that I may have hunted in the past, or I may be checking a primary scrape area that I found and set up on during that previous postseason, or I'm checking my old white oaks or apple trees to see if they have mast or fruit production that year. Um, Cause all that stuff changes from year to year. So I'm checking all of my locations and I'm mentally noting the sign. And so if I see if there's an apple tree, okay, this apple tree's got apples or this white oak has acorn. Typically, because there's a two and a half week gap from when they've rubbed out, there's going to be sign around. Sure. If they're feeding at it and does are feeding at it. Bucks are probably feeding at it as well. So there's going to be rubs in the area and there's probably going to be a scrape or two here and there. So I'm reading my sign. I'm looking for rubs that are not, you know, like two, two and a half feet off the ground. I'm looking for rubs that are up three and a half, four possibly even tying tickles on, on the tree up to five feet because as bucks mature, they get taller and their antlers get taller. So obviously the rubs are going to be up higher. So that's going to dictate whether it's a mature buck or not. Um, and scrape areas are the same way. Typically when you're doing a, a preseason speed tour, if there's active scrapes, if scrapes are opened up, usually your bucks that have been through at least one breeding season are the ones that open up those early scrapes. So I'll, I'll know, you know, okay, I'm going to mark this spot. This is an active scrape. There's two, three of these scrapes opened up. You know, this is a spot I'm going to put on my early season rotation. So I, I'm looking at all my sign. That's how I'm looking at my sign. I, I look at my sign from my preseason speed tours, which are typically designed for what I'm going to hunt during the early season. And then I'll pick out my best trees that I'm going to hunt according to what kind of sign was there. Because yeah. I'll go into season with 50, probably on average, 50 trees prepped for my saddle. Wow. And I'll probably only hunt a dozen of them during the course of the season based on, you know, mass production, food production, or the scrape area is active, crop rotations change things. Um, 
there's, there's just a lot of different things that change deer movements from one year to the next. So I'll hunt them according to what I see on that. Just because you said, um, where did we end on? Oh, you're just talking about um, looking for that sign. And, and I was going to go ahead. Well, was it? you said you had like, you know, you might hunt 12 of those 50 spots um, throughout the year. I'm curious from year to year, do you have, obviously, and you don't have to tell us, do you have honey hole spots that you're like, eh, this, this spot, typically I've got a, I've got a shooter buck around. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Deer, mature bucks gravitate to certain locations, certain bedding areas yep. because they have the most adequate security cover or there may be, you know, a pre-rut scrape area locations that are better than other scrape area locations just because it's got the adequate security cover. It's close to a, let's say a standing cornfield where they got security cover, the standing corn. So yeah, there is definitely, I have money little spots from here to here. Yeah. Without uh, and bedding to me, my best honey holes are almost 100% within bedding areas. Yeah. You know, I hunt a lot of interiors of bedding areas. So like when I was talking earlier and I said, there's going to be, maybe there's a scrape area over here and the scrape area has a lot of perimeter security cover around it. So the scrape area itself is adequate for a mature buck to be at because he feels secure because of the security cover around it, but there's no security cover transitioning to it from a bedding area. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an excellent chance if the bedding area was accessible to me as far as entry and exit routes without spooking a lot of deer on, you know, going in in the morning, I would hunt within the bedding area during, but I usually only hunt bedding areas uh, during pre-rut. Run. So that's, uh, that was one of the first things that I had come across from you, John, was um, just because so many people are, are, and including myself, usually super cautious early in the season and kind of get more aggressive as the season goes on your philosophy is, you know, if, if the things kind of align to hunt interior bedding could be on opening day. It's pretty rare. I hunt bedding areas early in the season. Okay. It's not- I don't want to spook anything out of them. I hunt bedding areas primarily during the rut phases because that's when mature bucks are actually starting their testosterone levels rising. Yep. That's when they're actually starting to look for estrostose. So bedding areas are where does bed. Yep. That's where bucks are going to go in and start looking. And during the rut phases, you know, there's so many people that leave bedding areas as sanctuary. Yeah. And that I do not understand because if I wanted to kill you, my best place to wait would be probably my in the house. closet. In your yeah, probably. Okay. You're going to be there every night. Now during the rut phases, mature bucks, the dominant bucks, they're going to try and push does, estrus does, into bedding areas. Mm. So, you know, a lot of guys will hunt the perimeter of bedding areas. I've heard this a thousand times. Yeah, I was hunting the perimeter of this bedding area, and I could hear deer in there moving around, chasing around in the middle of the day. But they never came out. Duh. Why did they need to come out? They got the hot doe in the bedding area. You know, they're going to breed her. She's going to lay down. He made bed 10 or 15 yards downwind of her. When 20 minutes, 30 minutes go by, he'll get up, he'll go over and center and she'll usually stand up and run 30 40 yards and they'll breed her again and that cycle goes on throughout the whole day in that bedding area so why would you not want to be on the interior of a bedding area during rug phases because that's where all the deer activity is happening mm-hmm. you just well, have to have a really good set control regimen well that's what i was gonna go yeah. next go so ahead. john what do you say to guys that are like and i've seen it you know bucks that will cruise the downwind side of a bedding area like i know you know that that happens so like how does that factor into your strategy for hunting 
betting area. Well, if they're in the betting area, they're not cruising down the side of a betting area unless it's a really tiny betting area. So, I mean, I'm talking betting areas. I'm talking, you know, decent-sized 5, 10, 20-acre betting areas around public land. It could be oh. you know, a couple hundred-acre betting areas. Okay. So, I'm just getting in the interior, and, and I always postseason scouted those out where I go in postseason, I can spook every deer out of there for a week straight. I can be in there daylight till dark for a week, run every deer out of there. But I'm looking for areas where the most runways converge. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a little open area and a bunch of security cover. There's definitely going to be sign in that little opening. Yeah. And deer feel comfortable moving during daylight hours when they're in the security cover of a bedding. Yeah. Whereas so- outside of that bedding area, they're a lot less likely to be moving during daylight hours. Pressure yeah, no doubt. I guess the reason for the question, it makes sense hearing the type of habitat that you're hunting. Um, like my family farm in Ohio is like, there's not a bedding area bigger than two or three acres, yeah. you know, at most. Like these are knobs, these are hillsides. And so pretty frequently, you know, to say they're in the bedding area, it's like literally, you, know, you would look into the bedding area and it's like, I could see them running around in there. Oh, okay. Very frequently, you know, I do see bucks that will cruise the downwind side of it because easily they can smell the whole thing without having to be in it, you know, go through busting through brush and stuff. And so, you know, we've seen some success with that, but that answers that question, though. No, but no, there's there's a solution to that because scrape areas are are the same way. Yeah. When I'm setting up on a primary scrape area during postseason, when I'm prepping location, I will almost always, if there is a tree, on the south or southwest, I'm sorry, southeast side yeah. of a primary scrape area, and this would be the same as that little bedding area you're talking about. I'll set a tree up maybe 20 yards downwind, because wind's usually out of the north or the northwest. That's yep. where the predominant winds are in the fall. I'll set it something up 20 yards to 25 yards downwind of the actual scrapes themselves. Mm. And then I will also clear a shooting lane 25 to 30 yards southeast of my tree so now if a buck comes in and this usually happens in the middle of the day if a buck comes in he will scent check that scrape area without physically going to it so he can come any place between that scrape area and 50 yards downwind i've got a shot you you kind of follow what i'm saying i do i've got a 25 yard shot through the scrape area 25 downwind my tree man there's like and i've got several big bucks in michigan in the middle of the day doing that exact same thing. In the middle of and the day. Is your hmm. So, and I assume you're looking for a weather pattern or a weather front to, to pull something like that off. Even though I personally don't pay attention to wind, I never get winded. I don't pay attention to my wind. Yeah. When I'm going to hunt that tree, I'm going to look to hunt it during a Northwest wind where a buck would be scent checking it on the side of the tree or the side of the scrapes where I'm hunting. I mean, this. Well, we have to go to scent now. Well, this is, <laughs> so this is the category, right? Because this is one of the things that this is the John Eberhardt is you don't pay attention to the wind, your wind. No, no, wind is irrelevant as far as me worrying about me getting winded. I I started using scent lock in 1990s. I think it was 97, and by 1999, took me about two years. I got to the point where I learned how to properly care for it because the way they tell you it doesn't all doesn't. I've never found a way that they tell you to do it on the hang tank to work. Okay. So I learned how to properly care for it. I learned how to properly store it and I learned how to properly use it. And I learned what to use in conjunction with it, where I don't pay attention to wind. When I'm walking in, I can touch vegetation, walk through cattails, walk through weeds, 
brush against my clothes, irrelevant, totally irrelevant. As long as I got my sunblock gloves on, we're out touching stuff with that as well. And obviously I'm wearing rubber boots. You can't wear leather or cordura boots, but I pay zero attention to wind. And um, I don't even look, I mean, even when I get ready to shoot at a deer, I have no, I have no idea if it's downhill because I just don't even think about it. And for the first 35 years I hunted, I paid 100% attention to wind direction. So yeah. when I sit here and say, I don't pay attention to wind, I'm not an idiot that, you know, Sure, know right. clearly. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Years, I'm not crazy. <laughs> totally paying attention, but totally paying attention to the wind. And there were years where, I mean, I quit hunting sides of ridges. I quit hunting uh, undulations. I quit hunting saddles. You know, there was years I didn't get to hunt my best rut phase locations because the wind was never wrong. Never, I'm sorry, the wind was never correct on the days I had off work because that's a pretty short period of time for your rut and rut. Yeah. Um, so being able to go anywhere you want at any time and not pay attention to the wind direction is a monstrous advantage. What was and your. Why people don't take advantage of it. I, I want to hear more about his process if you're willing well, to share. Well, I just, I kind of want to ask uh, first, like, what was your epiphany there? Like, was, can you pinpoint something in your head when you started using that stuff that you were like, wait a minute? Like, yes. What was Again, it? I actually did tests. I did tests. When I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm having deer go down with me and they're not smelling me. I, I actually did a couple tests. One of them was really interesting. I had this piece on public land and there was a doe and a fawn that was coming out in the exact same spot coming out of the cedar swamp going into a private hay field next next to the public land but she had to transition through like 200 yards of public to get to the fence to cross into the hay field. so my tree was on the south side of the runway mm -hmm. the runway was about 20 yards from my tree so you know and usually the winds out of the north that's why i was on that side right my wind direction so i waited for a southerly wind just to do this test. And it was also during mid-October when the likelihood of a big buck coming was pretty close to zero. It was during the October lull. So the first day I sat there, we had a due south wind and it was warm obviously because the wind was out of south. And that Dawn Fawn came out and when she got, when she was walking down that runway, just browsing on the vegetation. And when she got due north of me, it was like somebody smacked her in the face, man. She just came alert and turned and looked right in the direction of the tree I was in. And then she snorted and turned around and ran back into the swamp. The next day, the next afternoon, I got in the same tree and I was hoping the same doe came back and I wore sunlock. And that deer came out exactly the same time, went right by me, never looked her head, her and her fawn browsed and went right out into that hayfield and went, you know, and kept going. And then another time I had, I was hunting right on the edge of some cattails and I was in a hemlock tree and I was probably 10 yards from the actual cattails. They were going into the cattails to bed and this was on a morning hunt and it was probably eight o'clock in the morning and there was three does and two fawns and they came by me. They went by me and they were right on the edge of those cattails and one of the does visualized me. She actually turned around and she was looking you know she they were when they were browsing they were kind of looking around anyway 
if she noticed me up in this hemlock, because this hemlock, they're not like a white pine. Or yeah. Neither, they're kind of open. Yep. And she, she picked me in the tree. And at the time she did, she was on the uh, upwind side of me. She was not downwind. She had already came through the downwind side. And now she was going into cattails, which was on the upwind. So she started, she went around my tree. And when she did, these other does started to follow her too. And, you know, because they're nervous because she was nervous. She was the lead doe. And they walked around my tree 20 yards directly downwind of me. And they're standing there with their, you know, with their nose up in the air. They're trying to win me because they, that one doe can see me. And I am not moving a muscle. Mm -hmm. And they finally just walked back around and met up with their fawns and went into the cattails. And I, I have deer downwind of me all the time. All of them. So, so for sake of getting to the bottom of this thing, which I think I think we're going to intend to here, I'll come out and say I have been smelled in scent lock. Yes. So clearly, you're doing something. Your process is what's mm-hmm. yielding that result. Most people that have bought scent lock and used scent lock have been winded in scent lock. Yep. I will give you that. Yep. And if you watch TV shows or you go by what scent lock has on their hang tags you are probably going to get winded. The mm-hmm. TV guys have no clue how to use something. Okay. They wear a jacket and they wear a pair of pants and they have their gloves on. Then they wear a logo cap, their hair's hanging out. They got beards. So what, what do they say? What's on the hang tag that says, what, what's the procedure? The hang tag says to wash your clothing and you should not wash your clothing. Okay. Hmm. You should not wash your clothing. Washing your clothing, um, the liquid detergent actually plugs the pores in the activated carbon. The pores okay. in activated carbon are microscopically small, okay? So it doesn't take a whole lot of liquid to plug plug those pores. And also the washing the suits breaks down the glue that the activated carbon liner is sandwiched between the two pieces of fabric. So once you break down that glue, that carbon moves around in there. So then you're gonna have areas where there's no carbon. Okay. You kind of follow what I'm saying? Yep, yep. yep. And and you have to wear rubber boots and you can't wear new rubber boots. You know, I always let boots season a year or two before I'll even wear them hunting. I'll wear them scouting and stuff, okay. but I won't wear them hunting because mm. they have a strong rubber motor, which yeah. is a fork motor to a pressured deer. Out west, it wouldn't make any difference. But in a Michigan or PA, it's going to matter, yeah. you know, because it's a foreign odor and a foreign odor will alter a mature buck's movements during daylight hours. So... You know, you, I just deabsorb my clothes in the dryer. It's got to be a clean dryer. So I'll usually wash some towels and separate detergent, run them through the dryer cycle. Then I'll throw my, my uh, scent lock clothing in there, just scent lock. It's always by itself. And then I'll run it for usually 40 minutes on a high heat setting, which is usually the timer cycle. Uh, and I'll set it on 40 minutes. And then as soon as it comes out of the dryer, it goes into an airtight tub. And then it goes into my minivan. And the only time I put it on is when I'm changing into it. And then when I come back hunting, it t- comes off and goes right back into that toe. So it's never exposed to the air. When okay. you talk to guys, they hang it outside. They think hanging it outside is going to help it like it would on regular clothes. Right. Yeah. Activated carbon doesn't know you're hunting or you're not hunting. It's absorbing 100% of the time. It's exposed to whatever molecules are in the air. It's always absorbing. Hmm. So the care is very important. And you have to wear you have to wear a head cover with a drop down face mask 40 percent of your odor comes out of your head so 
if you're wearing a, if you got an exposed face, you're wearing stinky face paint, you got hair hanging down below a hat, even if you're wearing a scent lock ball cap and you got hair hanging down, your scent control is gone. Yeah. You have to do, you know, you have to do it all. It, it would help. You know, it, you may get rid of 70% of your odor if you just wear a cell lock sure. cap. Percent of your body odor is coming out of your face, your beard, and your neck. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like driving a car on three tires. You could drive it, but it doesn't work as well as when it's got all four tires. Yeah. So you have to do it all correctly to not pay attention to wind at all. And very few people are detail oriented enough to do that. You sure. have to be a detailed person. So this so isn't not, something. So not my dad. Is what you're saying. <laughs> can't fudge corners and expect it to work right but if you do it right and um my dad has a scent lock suit i'm pretty sure i have a bunch of scent lock documents and i i almost hate saying it because i i'm really getting tired of sending them <laughs> i've probably sent a thousand of them out in the last two weeks yeah um i've got can, a canned set of documents for scent control and if somebody emails me <laughs> just scent control regiment i'll send it to them okay so how how often do you uh, react? My emails, my emails on my website. So if somebody wants to email, oh yeah, and here come the emails. Uh, how how often do you reactivate the carbon in the dryer? Uh it de- it totally depends on the time of year. Depends on how much you're sweating, mm-hmm. like early season, uh, where you're going to perspire a lot more and yep. you're not going to have on a bunch of undergarments. I usually do mine every two hunts. Wow. Okay. If, I, if I'm perspiring a little bit every two months, okay. uh, when you get later into the season, okay, now you've got your suit on, you got maybe a merino wool base underneath and then one other layer underneath your jacket and your pants uh, every four months, probably. And then when it gets into the really late season and you may have a heated vest on and a heavier merino wool, you know, every six months. Got it. Fish. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, you hear, and everybody, this goes back to everybody's kind of got their opinion, right? You hear somebody like a Don Higgins who like literally will not go into an area unless the wind is correct. Um, well, I would say that's a majority of guys are, are on oh, yeah. the side of the wind matters, right? Mm-hmm. I'd say 95%. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What's your and take? If I was in Don Higgins position and I wasn't wearing something like I would just because it's in line with this kind of don't worry about the wind uh any opinions on the ozone things i'm not a big ozone fan as far as using it on my sunlock garments because ozone has a foreign odor Mm -hmm. i would never even consider using an overhead ozone machine i know a guy that's tv show is sponsored by that and while that ozone machine was on all the time when he was on TV, uh, when he uses it on his property in Michigan, he gets busted all the time, even by even by year and a half. Old. Yeah, I've, I've it, used it in passing. I got busted. Well, I too. mean, I'll be the first to say, like, like I smell it <laughs> and like I, my nose isn't as good well, as a deer. Like, I would think that they smell it as just up foreign. It, foreign is something. it a foreign smell, though? Because isn't ozone, I mean, at least when I've heard ozone it spoken is, about. If, if it's after a storm, it's not so warm. They, you know, after you get a yeah. rainstorm, there's that supposedly that ozone type of order out there. Yeah. But you keep in mind when you're hunting a pressured animal, you're hunting a totally different animal than Don Higgins or Bill Winkie's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're not hunting a pressured animal. Yeah. And a pressured animal, when you're looking at a four or five year old, three or four year old buck in a pressured area, anything that's out of the ordinary when he's moving through the woods is going to alter his mindset going to continue on in that direction. Mm-hmm. So 
it doesn't matter what the foreign owner is. It's not supposed to be there. So it's going to change his mindset. When you're in an area where there's been no consequences for deer until he's four or five years old, he's going to accept a lot of things. Mm -hmm. That's why the guy I'm talking about, you know, when he was using his ozone overhead machine, he shot lots of, lots of book bucks out of state and on beta on ranches. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think that, you know, obviously from an assumption, the fact that you're not paying attention to the wind as much, Don, would say that you probably put yourself in a lot more positions to harvest a deer versus guys like us, frankly, who, like, I'm looking at the forecast for a week out, and I'm like, well, no Northwest. Like, I, I'm done. Like, can't I can't, there. cannot there. Big time. Absolutely. Well, you can't go into a – you can't go in and hunt a bedding area on an all-day sit where you're in there an hour and a half daylight to beat the deer into the bedding area and then leave half hour after dark so you're leaving after they leave without having deer downwinded yet it's impossible when you're on bedding areas deer are going to be around you in from any direction right so you can't do that if you have to pay attention to one what would you say john just in regards to um i guess the the statement that a mature buck any deer frankly will, will you know you, they use the wind, right? And, and frankly, they probably travel according to, you know, or in a way that they can stay downwind of something that they're trying to approach. So if it's a, scrape, a co- dough, corn pile, bear, yeah. scrape bear, yeah, whatever it is, you'd agree that, a, let's just say mature bucks, for the sake of our conversation, are going to try to approach that from downwind, correct? I think anytime a mature buck is coming towards a destination location, yeah, they're going to try and do it from the wind. But for people that say deer always move according to wind direction, well, if you have the same wind direction yeah. for five days, the deer is going to end up five miles in one direction. Right, right. Okay, so, you know. Can't be downwind not, of everything at all times. <laughs> yeah, he's always going to be walking in the same direction. The wind's blowing the same direction for four or five days. So that's BS. Uh, but, yeah, whenever they're coming into a destination location where there's especially – any place where there's potential danger, they're going to play the wind. It's just like coyote hunt. Yep. You go try and call coyotes out in PA or Michigan yep. or West Virginia, and you're in an area with security cover or timber, they're going to always come in from down. Yep. Yep. They're going to always circle down. You go out to Kansas, you know, you call coyotes across big open areas, they come in from whatever direction they're at. So yep. it's totally different. And so your claim to basically say like, Hey, I don't, I don't pay attention to the wind at all. That's basically to make a point about your scent control tactic and that it works. Not necessarily I, to say that a buck isn't going to come in from downwind. Yes. When I say I don't pay attention to wind, I'm not worried about me. Yep. A deer worrying me. Mm-hmm. Correct. Which I would say most, a- most people are right. When most people think about hunting the wind, frankly, I don't think that most people pay attention enough to how a buck will approach something because of the wind as much as, well, I'm just worried about my downwind, yes. basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think most people, when they're talking about the wind, they're worried about their wind mm-hmm. swooping your downwind of them. Yeah. And I have, I know lots and lots and lots of guys that pay no attention to wind that I've, you know, got into my scent control. I'm Interesting. And I've got tons of testimonials on my website. I actually quit putting them on there 10 years ago because – I just got tired of putting them on my website. So I'd love, I'd love to uh, read some of those, be exposed to that. Cause I mean, Jeremy and I are still getting smelled and we're paying attention to the wind and we're curious. Well, and I'm not nearly as aggressive as I would like to be because of, 
yeah. conscientiously thinking, well, I can't hunt here because it's going to blow down here, and then thermals yeah. are sinking here. It's everything. Whatever. It's everything. Oh, it's everything. Yeah, thermals, and yeah, without a doubt. Well, and think, of, think about morning, yeah. swirling winds. Well, that's what I was say. Think about the overcomplication because the fact is when, you, when you're thinking about your wind and then having to think about position of a deer approaching the wind direction and then using that to determine, hey, here's the best tree, there's so many dynamics there that, frankly, you know, <laughs> Dude, you're I, spun sideways. I can remember, you know, so this would have been <clears throat> six, seven, eight years ago for, for me, if, if that long ago, when I started first really paying attention to that stuff, like I was like, oh, in my mind, oh, Wind is so important, like, you know, scent control, and I'm going to approach with this wind. I can remember when that didn't work out, like the wind wasn't doing what I wanted, which was 90% of the time. I got to where I was going, and I was like, <laughs> I was so mad. I can remember just being in a tree stand, just pissed off that the wind wasn't cooperating. Yeah, it happens to everybody. <laughs> I was pissed. Oh, wind swirling is huge. I mean, back in my day when I watched, I used to, you know, I, I laugh at the milkweed thing because I used milkweed in the 70s. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is so old school. Pretty innovative, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, when you're hunting, a lot of guys hunt crop field edges. I never hunt crop field edges in Michigan. Hmm. You know, I will out west, but not in Michigan. And, you know, when you got foliage, shoot the wind. If there's a any kind of an angling wind hitting a tree line, a certain percentage of that is going to turn and go down to the corner. And if there's a corner, then it's going to make a swirl in that corner. Yep. I mean, foliage, a foliage Huge. alters wind direction. No big doubt. Time, big yep. time. And then when you get in saddles and ridges and thermals and swirls, you know, I, I used to hunt where, yeah, the wind would change every five minutes. Yeah. I mean, and once you're in a tree and you're committed, throwing milkweed up is a, what good is it? Yeah. yeah. You're all right there. What are you going to do? Get down and move? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so not having to pay attention to wind direction is a monstrous, monstrous deal. And it gives you way more opportunities. Well, There's two things in my career that have made night and day difference on me killing book bucks. And it's been hunting out of a saddle since 81 and scent control. Well, that's where I was going to go next is, you know, you talk about the freedom from not have to worrying about your own scent, you know, you're, in my opinion, and I don't know, maybe fact check it, you're the original saddle guy, right? At, at least from an understanding of... Well, I told you before we started, I mentioned to you, to my uncle, um, I think, who looks up to you, and he's like, that's the saddle guy, right? Yeah, and so, like, we're talking about, like, because, you know, what, what would we say? Maybe here in the last three, four years, this kind of saddle craze, John, I guess, would be what I would call it, kind of has really picked up momentum. You're talking 40 years ago. I started saddle hunting in 1981. I bought this thing in a sporting goods store, and it was a bunch of seatbelt straps and tied together with a lead strap. And I bought it. Nobody knew what it was that worked in the store. Nobody could tell me anything about it. I just saw a picture on the cover, uh, kind of a stick figure, stick figure picture of this guy up in a tree and he could move around the tree 360, he could hunt bigger trees. Uh, he just had a lot of freedom and it, and it was back then stands were really creaky and big and cumbersome. And, you know, the idea that I could prep 50 trees and hunt every tree with the same saddle set up whenever I wanted to. And I never had to worry about it creaking. I was always tethered to the tree. So it's far safer than a, than a tree stand. Uh, I can shoot and move around the tree. I can move around the tree to hide my body. 
I can shoot 360 degrees around any tree. I can hunt trees that big around. I can hunt trees that big around. I can hunt trees that lean. Um, nobody's going to steal my stand on public land if I leave there. Nobody's going to hunt out of it if I'm not there. Um, the, the advantages are just so many. You tend to hunt higher also than you hunt out of a saddle hmm. because once you get comfortable in a saddle, you know, when you first get up in a saddle and you let go of the rope, it's like, whoa, you know, <laughs> you think you're going to fall because it's different. It's like a consumer right. power guy hanging on a pole, but, uh, they're so safe and they're so easy to use. And, you know, when you're hunting at a, uh, let's say a destination location, like at a scrape area or at a white oak tree or at a feeding location, when you prep the tree, you always prep the tree where you're going to be 180 degrees on the opposite side of the tree from the destination kills kill zone. So if there's, you know, let's say you're at an oak tree and there's four or five deer come in and they're all feeding under this oak for 20 minutes, you're not going to get picked. When you put a metal stand up there, you have to kick it off to the side. So you've got that shot. If you were on the back side of the tree and it was a very big diameter, you couldn't shoot to right. the destination spot. So you got to be kicked off to the side where you are likely going to get picked or more uh, a higher opportunity to get picked mm -hmm. because, you know, you're sticking out and there's those deer when they eat, they don't just keep their heads down on the ground. When they pick up a piece of an apple or an acorn, they lift their head up or feed them. They're looking around for danger. And their ears are moving all the time. So, you know, being able to hide behind the tree and then slide to the side, just swing slightly to the side when your shot opportunity is there to take the shot, it's a big deal. Or being able to move around the tree as deer are going by that you don't want to shoot. Or, you know, as a big buck's coming in and let's say you're in, you're in your saddle, you're hanging from the tree and here comes this buck in from this direction, you move around the tree. You, you literally lift your bow up, put it on a hook on the back side of the tree. You move around to this side of the tree. And then as this buck comes, you just swing around over to the opposite side. Now you got the tree as a buffer, so he can't visually see you. You just swing, swing over to the side. And when he's right in here, you just take that quartering to your shot. So there's so, there's just so many advantages to a saddle. And once you feel safe in it, you'll find yourself hunting a lot higher where you're going to be out of their peripheral vision a lot less chance of getting picked in a transition zone. I think that's one thing that, you know, even with this, like call it the new saddle craze that I see, um, when I see somebody using it, I'm like, huh, that's not really a true advantage. And it's simply because they're putting a platform just like I would put a hang on off the side of the tree and they're not utilizing that tree as cover, right? You are Hundred They're still sticking out like a sore thumb. In fact, I, the first time I was ever in a saddle, I'm sitting on the side and I'm like, man, I feel like I'm sitting, I'm sticking out more than I would if I was in a lock on until you realize yeah. like you need to know how to work that tree to your favor. That's one. That's one of the major problems I have with YouTube. There's so many guys on YouTube that don't have a clue what they're doing out of the saddle. Yeah. And, and almost everybody is standing on a platform. Yeah. If you're on a platform and you're in a standard size tree that's like 14 to 16 inches diameter, you have zero advantage standing on the leading edge of a platform. In fact, I think it's more of a disadvantage. That's what I'm saying. Being that's on a tree stand where your body is physically up against the tree trunk. 100%. That's what throws me off, John. I see people doing this and I'm like, how is this an advantage? Like, I feel like I'm sticking out like crazy. Like, they're clearly going to see me versus in a a lock on I'm using like up against the tree as a blending cover. 
you're absolutely correct. So because a tree stand guy, he can stand up on his platform on a standard size tree and shoot to the other side of the tree on a smaller tree. Yeah. Oh, and when you are on a sap, when you're in a saddle and you're standing on the leading edge of a platform, your body is literally 24 inches away from the tree, making it much easier to get picked. Yeah. If you were sitting in a tree stand with your body, your upper body's tight against the tree. Yes. So you have to have the ring of steps. You know, to me, people that are not using a ring of steps, which is basically steps all the way around the tree at that? the level of your standing. It's like a strap and it's got steps all, oh. all the way around it. It doesn't have to be a strap. It can be screw-ins. Or a, yeah. But yeah, they make, they make, for public land, it'd have to be a strap-on. Oh. Cranford, Cranford makes a strap-on ring um, or screw-ins. And basically there's steps every eight to 10 inches. So you can easily, without even looking at the steps, you just easily move around the tree, yes. keep the tree as a hiding buffer or for different shot opportunities at different angles. And on a bigger tree, you know, if you're hunting a tree this big around, obviously it's going to require more steps for sure. your ring. You want to keep the steps eight to 10 inch gaps and no wider than that. So you can, when you're moving around the tree, it's very easy and very fluid. So you're not making any hard, rigid movements. Right. So on those steps, John, to avoid that, you know, leaning out away from the tree, are you just like standing on the steps and trying to just like lean against the tree almost, or are you still leaning back no, into your saddle? Be, nope. You would be, you know, if I'm, if I'm standing on the steps, yep. typically when you're, when you are properly on steps, you're going to have a step between your legs. That's in. Okay. Got it. Okay. So your legs are going to be somewhat straddling a normal sized tree. Gotcha. Yeah. And then, and your knees are going to be somewhat bent with yeah. most of your weight in your ass. Yeah. You're mm -hmm. not going to have a lot of weight in your feet if you're doing it right. It's yeah. all going to be blood. That's what the seat's for. Yep. Then when you want to take your shot, you kind of, I always move or maneuver around the tree and keep the tree as a buffer. And then when I want to take my shot, I keep my feet on whatever steps I'm on to keep the tree at 180 between me. Mm. And then when I want to take my shot, I may take my left foot and move it to a tree a step over there. And then you just lean out and take the shot. Got yeah. It. Well, it seem, yeah. seems like that, whatever we call it, the wheel, wheel of steps. Is that what it's called? Ring. Called ring, of ring of steps. That seems like kind of the ticket because, you know, I, I know I've hunted out of, you know, we've got some some hawk saddles and they work pretty good. But, you know, it's it's got a platform no, in front. Well, no, this is my no. first experience <laughs> with them. I, and so... Yeah. I'm, I feel like I'm sticking way out from the tree, you know, and it, there's yeah. no way for me to get my feet on the sides of it. And so my knees end up like against the tree the whole time. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I was being an ass. No, no, no. But seriously, because it's it, it feels like we're uncomfortable in some of these situations, which. So Hawk, I'll, I'll, let me tell you something. Hawk replicated Tethered's mantis. Okay. Uh -huh. Tether doesn't make the mantis anymore for a very specific reason. It's a very poorly designed saddle. Okay. okay. The hawk and the mantis, both, they're both single panel saddles. Mm -hmm. When you fidget, they ride up your back. You're constantly lifting your weight up, pulling it back under your ass. Sounds familiar. Constantly. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and they're not comfortable. Hmm. Uh, there's way better saddles out there than that. I have a signature saddle, which is a two panel, mm -hmm. which never rides up. But um, just to clarify that, there's a Cruiser makes a saddle, Tethered Phantom, that's another awesome single panel saddle. The Hawk is one of the most poorly designed saddles on the market. Um, Noted. It would definitely give you a bad experience. So don't. Okay. 
Interesting. Please don't relay the Hawk saddle to what other saddles are out there because it's a night day difference. But the ring is, yeah, when you're on a platform and that's all you have and you don't have a, you know, platforms are fine if you want to put steps in conjunction with it around the backside of the tree sure. so that you can step off that platform and move around the tree to keep the tree as a hiding bumper and then slide to the side and shoot. That's fine. But to just have a platform, it's just like what Jeremy said. You're just, you're just limited. Yeah. I feel like I'm just like, I always, in just how I was raised, I used the tree to the advantage to, to either, mm-hmm. you know, blend in and break up my outline or to use it in between me and the deer, you know, however it was. And when I see a lot of these people in this new saddle craze doing stuff, I'm like, yeah, I see you. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you're, yeah. you're, you're out to the, you're out at a 45 degree angle of the tree. Like clearly, I see you, bitch. like I see you. Yeah. I but, see you. Uh, gotcha. <laughs> like it's well, not, well yeah. and so that's why like, and John, one of the reasons why you're on here is because I again, there's a lot of bad information that is being put out in this industry nowadays. And frankly, something like saddles that I think could be very useful to a lot of people. Somebody watches the wrong thing and just uses a platform and is out 45 degrees. They're going to get busted every time. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. And there is a lot of bad information in most guys you see on a saddle now that are using a platform. They've got their feet on the leading edge and basically their legs are straight. And then they bitch because their feet get sore. Yeah. hundred percent. It has a seat in it for a reason. It's to sit in, you know? So when you're hunting out of a saddle properly, and when I say properly, I'm talking with ring steps, yep. your feet are on steps and kind of to the side of the tree, a little bit sideways on the tree and your, your legs are, you know, your knees might be touching the tree or possibly straddling. And so most of your weight, I like to have like 80% of my weight is in my butt. I'm sitting, wow. you know, 10% on my feet. When I'm sitting in my saddle, I can lift the foot up with no problem and hold it there for 10 seconds. That's not better. Much weight in well, feet. and I was going to say, and you, you mentioned that one, there's several others I have tried saddle wise. And at, most of them probably are the single panel. I would assume. I feel like there's too much pressure in my hips, which sounds like a woman, but. You, you know, do you get John's like, no, no. Two panel saddles don't ride up because, and they don't pinch your hips because two panel saddles, basically you got two different panels and they, you can overlap them to make a six inch seat okay. or you can spread them apart. However you want them. You can have a seven, eight, nine, 10, 12. You can have the one panel underneath your ass and the other panel can be up above your waist. And I got you. However you want. So in that lower panel, that inner panel, no matter how you fidget, that stays under the your butt. It's right up there at the base. It stays there. It never ever moves. That makes way more sense. Two panel saddles or single panel saddles are like this. This may sound gross, but I'm going to tell it. I've heard that before. (laughs) But here we go. (laughs) You know, we all humans have butts. We do. And you got two separate butts. Okay, you so have when you're in, you have butt. You have two separate butt cheeks. So when you're in a pant, when you're in a single panel saddle, whenever you fidget or when you're walking or whatever, you know your your butt cheeks move independently of each other. Yeah. Especially when you're hunting, and this is why they ride up. Whenever you fidget or you you know squeeze your ass cheeks, one butt cheek will go up higher than the other, and it'll slowly maybe a 16th or a 32nd of an inch at a time 
as your butt cheeks move, it pulls that saddle up in up up up, up into your waist. Yeah. And when you're pulling the top of the saddle up, it's pulling the bottom of the saddle out from under your ass. Mm. So that's why you're always lifting it up and pulling it back under your butt because your butt cheeks move while you're fidgeting or whatever you're doing. I think it just <laughs> pinches my butt cheeks to where I can't get a fart out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then it's, <laughs> your cheeks started swelling up. Like farting like in waiters, man. You suck. anyway two two panels but that makes sense makes perfect you understand what i'm saying like i just i feel like so much pressure here that it's just not comfortable to sit wow dude when i was hunting out of a single panel saddle it felt like i couldn't get those thigh straps tight enough I was like how do i do i have because it was riding up to tighten these things to to keep it yeah because i kept riding up Mm -hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense talking about those little cup seats on the side yes yeah, that's that. They put those there because single panel saddles have they ride up all the time. They tried. They put those little adjustments there to try and keep that cupped under your butt. Yeah, but your it doesn't butt going to move. It's going to climb. Especially my butt. My wife's told me it's quite quite large. Got a Kim Kardashian. Butt. There you go. You have to get the extra large. Yeah, well, I've been training for the mule deer hunt. Oh, so, I got you. Know, stepping on that stair stepper with a hundred pounds on my I back. But that, I, I have several saddle YouTube videos on my. Cool. Uh, well, and that's. So yeah. when you would prep a stand, so let's say, you know, back in the day, and it, it probably differed private versus public, but when you would prep a tree to sit, would you have the ring of steps there already? Typically, if it's on private, yeah. I've, when I climb the tree there, that's all set. It's already on set public, up. Uh, yeah, on public, obviously, yeah. with strap-ons. I'm not leaving strap-on stuff in the tree. Right. Mm-hmm. On public, it's going to get stolen. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I prep it when I go there. So, John, what's, uh, what's the major, like, obstacle that saddle hunters have with their hunting apparel? And if you want to use that to kind of segue into what you're telling us about before the podcast, that might be a good good spot for it. Well, I guess I don't understand what you mean, problem with their hunting apparel. Well, so you're talking about coming out with something new that's going to solve the issue oh, that yes. people are having well, with their apparel. And this is basically going to be for guys that use Sunlock, you know, um, well, so apparently, I, it seems know. like that's the one that everybody should be using if we don't have to worry about getting detected. If they, if they get my documents, then you guys email me yourself. The documents. You. you read through that. You'll understand activated carbon. You'll understand everything about the technology. Just for the sake of doing it right now, John, can you email us those documents? You have my email. You don't have to do it right now, but I, I wanted to ask I'm you a, right I'm now. making a note. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Send anyway, us the documents. Uh, I have never been tied to Sunlock, okay? Yep. So there's not been any monetary reason for me to endorse Sunlock other than it works and not paying attention to wind because I majored in it. Okay. But I can't say that for 2022 because Sunlock, I, uh, I kind of teamed up with them last summer and I went in there and designed a, it's going to be a Johnny Burhardt signature Sunlock suit for 2022. Uh, and it's going to be primarily designed for saddle hunting. So the pockets are going to be a little bit higher on the jacket, uh, knee pads. How cool is you know, that? Built-in built knee pads. Props to uh, Scentlock for picking up on that and doing something doing something right there. First time they've ever did a signature suit for anybody. It's very so, cool. Yeah, uh, man. And I'm, I'm very geeked about it, and it's, uh, it's a very unique suit. Do you, uh, do you have like a, I don't know if I want to call it proto or beta type. I mean, have, have you 
actually got your hands on it and you're like, yes, this is this is right. I was there yesterday. Oh, very cool. They're holding meetings. They got like 10 people, 10, 12 people in this conference room. They're, they're looking at all their new 2022 <laughs> prototype products. I was in a different room with the guy on mine. And yeah, it's can, can it's, you, uh, it's pretty close to exactly what I want. Can you yeah. tell us uh, like any of the attributes of that suit that's unique to, you know, like a standard Sentlock suit? Uh, the leg pocket designs are different. It's going to have a two-way zipper. So the zipper oh. will zip up from the bottom as well as from the top down. Mm. Uh, obviously, knee pads in the pants that are permanent. Um, it's going to have uh, the pants are going to have a little ride up thing in the back. So mm -hmm. your jacket's going to override that, you know, on, because it's a scent control piece. Uh, collar is going to be a little bit unique. It's going to have a three and a half, four inch collar in the back, but it's going to taper under your ears and it's going to be really short in the front because as a bow hunter, you're always turning your head yep. and these collars, these guys make nowadays, they put, yeah. everything's got a collar. And always in the way. Down. Yep. Yeah. It's always in the way. So it's really, it's only an inch short in the front. Um, it's going to have plenty of room in the arms for, you know, layer garments. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a piece. It's going to have a little bit of thin slit in the body of the suit. Um, and the pants, even though it's going to have belt loops, it's going to have a cinch tie, a cinch pull in the front, mm. like you'd have on a backpack show, you know, backpack strap. Oh, cool. So it's going to be, you put the damn things on, you button it up in the top, and then you just grab that. Cinch her down. Cinch her down. Cool. Or you can use a belt. So it will have belt loops, but there's going to be no reason to need, need a belt. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there's no butt pockets because you can't access a butt pocket when you're in a saddle anyway. Yeah. So that they're not going to be there. Um, it will still have the little hole in the back in case somebody wants to wear it in a tree stand. Yeah. You know, for, for safety harness. Mm -hmm. uh, that's some of the stuff I can think of. Uh, Very cool. Do, did they tell you or do you know what patterns, camo patterns it's going to be in or? be in real tree extra okay. i wanted i wanted it to be I, first off i wanted it to be they didn't give you what you want they didn't. this no, is the this is the much. john everhart signature series we're talking about here <laughs> i want we'll to go back in demand <laughs> i wanted either real tree escape or paragila yeah and uh and it costs like twice as much for the family so they, that's not your you problem. Know, that's Satlock's problem. Yeah, it sounds like somebody well, else had to figure that out. Down, so the retail wasn't so high. Yeah. So, uh -huh. um, and, and in reality, I mean, patterns are patterns, and they look good cosmetically. Yeah. I love that Terragila, and I love the new Real Tree Escape that came out last year. Um, but typically, in a saddle, at least for me, I'm hunting at a height where camel's not that big a deal, and I'm always hiding behind trees anyway. Yeah. I was going to ask tree, you. That. It's a good ask. The Real Tree Extra. I was going to ask you that, John, just in terms of patterns and stuff, you know, because Jared and I, frankly, have used Predator. Um, we like that blocky kind of open pattern. We, we um, use it all, man. Mossy Oak, real uh, yeah, tree. Yeah, I mean, we've used that. All everybody. over the board. Yeah. And so I wondered if, you know, uh, and again, I keep this in mind of your hunting style is using that tree basically as your blocker anyways from a field of vision type of, of standpoint. But if you had... Not necessarily a pattern like real tree, but like a type of pattern, more open, blocky, or more condensed, dark. If I had to pick one pattern for everything I hunted, yeah. Oh uh, boy, it's a lot of pressure. I, I like that new Terragila, and I like that new real tree escape. But uh, real tree extras, yeah, Mossy Country is fine for me for everything. I mean, when I get into 
December and there's snow in the trees or there's no foliage in the trees, you know, I use that sunlock vertigo pattern. Yeah. Which is the old open. Yeah. I think ultimately like good hardy apparel that, you know, is, is built for, you know, pocket access the right way that you want. It's way more important probably than, than the pattern. And I say that because like, I don't know if I've found, like, I love predators pattern, but in the early season or if I'm in like a dense woods or swamp, like it's not a good pattern for it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, cause it's supposed to look like open area behind me. Like, well, yeah, it's very, it's very white. Yeah. Yeah. Versus first time I wore predator. No, it wasn't predator. It was ASAP. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah, guy talked me into buying an ASAP suit, and the first time I wore it, I was in a pine tree, and this is going back years. <laughs> I was in a pine tree, and I mean, I had a six-point in Michigan public land come out at least 100 yards, and he turned and looked right at me. You look like a big snow owl out there. <laughs> yeah, it was really, I was like, wow, this stuff sucks. But it was just, I was in the wrong type, and I was just not in the right type yeah. of location for that pattern. Yeah. Yeah, that is funny. Yeah, that's that's cool, man. Well, first of all, uh, congrats to you. I mean, that's uh, it's really cool to be able to put, you know, all of your thought and years of experience into a piece of apparel and, and especially very specific for the type of hunting that you do. Yeah. And I, I yeah, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I also want to say something else. It, has, it is going to be windproof. So oh. the, it has a polyurethane membrane in it, which makes it windproof. And that's why I wanted the fleece exterior to mask the noise of the of membrane. Oh, but very it, nice. It's windproof. And uh, basically the whole body of the suit's going to be waterproof because it's all got a polyurethane membrane, which is a waterproof membrane, but it's not going to have tape seams. So if you're in a hard rain for a long period of time, it will eventually leak at the seams. Gotcha. I think I just uh, discovered my uncle's next Christmas gift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's, it's gonna be. Is he using a saddle yet? Put me down. No, no. Well, he wouldn't learn from the. He needs to watch John stuff anyways, because everybody else will tell him how to do it wrong. I guarantee his cop out would be, "I'm too old." And bullshit, John seventy. <laughs> and and I would be ready with a rebuttal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. My brother's seventy three, and he's still on out of the saddle. That's yeah. awesome. Well, and I I do think um is, so tying that back into kind of mine and and Jared's style of hunting is we do like to be very mobile, right? I mean, we like to be very fluid, whether it's public or even our private places, very fluid and very mobile. And and we've done a ton of run and gun. Uh, with lock-ons, right? I mean, that's really what we have been using. And it's simply because, I don't know if we've tried the right saddle and or, like, I don't know enough about saddle hunting prior to this conversation. I've just gotten, com- we've just gotten comfortable with it. You know, I just feel really comfortable with a lock-on. I'm really good at hanging them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I figured out how to hunt out of them. I really haven't had any issues. Um, do you know what was weird for me was because I missed <laughs> I miss that whole in the seventies and eighties, like I realized saddles are not a new thing. So this recent craze, like within the past three, four years, it seemed to me was like mobility, mobility. I can go anywhere with this saddle. And, uh, you know, so we, we went and got some and the more that I hunted them out of them, I was like, this is not any easier to hang. Like I still essentially have to climb the tree with sticks, hang a platform to stand on, or, you know, as you're saying, wheel, wheel of, uh, steps, ring, ring of steps. And then I have to get into it. I'm like, it's, it's essentially more steps than just hanging the hang on, on the tree and getting into it. And so I didn't personally see that as an advantage 
as it stands right now, I think the main argument that someone would make to me that I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's sheer size and weight and maybe weight, but I work out. So well, you got to look at the other, you got to look at the other advantages because I, you're limited to the trees you can hunt with a sure. lock on. Sure. You're limited to diameters. You're limited to leans. Yep. Um, you also, when you're carrying a lock on, um, it's cumbersome. You're also carrying a bow and you're probably carrying a backpack. So it's For cumbersome. Sure. And when you're hunting, when you're hunting public lands in a pressured state, yeah. you're bucking brush. You are not walking down a true track like Michael Waddell mm-hmm. and hanging a stand in an open timber lot shooting 150 inch deer. Yep. That ain't happening for you. Yep. Um, so you're bucking brush and with stands and cumbersome stuff, that's definitely difficult to do. You're custom and swear. And also when you're in this, when you're in a stand, it's a potential something that could creep. Yep. Uh, I mean, the new stands nowadays don't creep that much, but yeah. uh, it is a potential. Whereas with this saddle for freelancing, I shot my biggest buck on a freelance, my 180 inch. You know, I was just walking through the woods, jumped in a spot where there was a primary scrape area and shot 180 inch. Yeah. Um, and I think, I personally think it's easier. And I just think the advantages of finding a destination location, there's going to be a really high likelihood that there's going to be a tree that will, a saddle will work in that will be within shooting range of the destination spot. Whereas yeah. a lot of times with hang-ons, when I used hang-ons, I had to set up on sign leading to the destination spot because there wasn't a tree at it that would suit my stand. My, my stand. Mm. With a saddle, that's typically not a problem. Um, so that's another big advantage. I'd as agree far, with that. Yeah, you do have to put on some extra steps. Sure. That's the difference. And as opposed to pulling up a noisy stand on a rope or whatever and possibly making noise and spooking deer that are bedded within 50 yards, you know, you're going to have to put on a ring of steps. Yeah. Uh, are you, um, I assume you're carrying in a set of sticks with you when you're hanging on public or are you using tree branches or how are you climbing up? I use tree branches if they're available, you know, as a step. If it's a, I would never use a pine or a popple for a soft branch because when you're coming down out of the tree after dark, yep, uh, you know, those branches tend to not give you a warning when they're going to snap. Oh, they yeah. just snap. They go. Uh, so I make sure I cut off anything that's, you know, if I'm using steps, if there's a branch that's that big around, you know, I make sure I cut it flush to the tree so I don't mistake it Got coming it. out of the as a step but i'm gonna be perfectly frank and somebody's gonna give me some crap for it but a lot of times on public land because i'm on so far back in the crap i use screw-ins a lot yeah but if i'm in an area where it's it's going to be a little bit more open or if there's snow on the ground where i can be tracked you know i'm definitely using strap-on sticks i'm using those tethered one sticks right now with aiders Yep. But uh, when I'm back in the crap, I usually have a fanny pack that I wear below my backpack and it's got, you know, it's got steps on either strap on steps. But John, you can't screw well, things in I, trees. I on was just going to say, I love those tips from John that have to do with, I can't, they can't track me in the snow. Yeah. I could screw screw in my sticks, you know, yeah, cut, cutting yeah, trees in the, in the spring. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Like I get the tree damage part to a point, but like, come on now. Yeah. Like, I mean, I grew up with, a bag full, like you're saying, John, a bag full of those 99 cent green sticks. Wow. Well, it's one of those. Just, you know, it's one yeah. of those. You, you give them a manage to take a mile. If you say, yeah, you can cut trees, you're going to find a, you know, it's been, the force has been timbered. <laughs> 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 you know, <laughs> yeah. 
And if you're using a Mariscal step, uh, yeah, talking about. Those are the hardest steps to get in a tree. Oh, God, man. I don't know how many, uh, well, especially if, like, I'm layered up or something. I don't know how many cuss battles I've had with the tree in the past of, like, jamming that thing in and trying to, like, turn that you know thing. Why? You know why they screw in so hard? Because they're painted. Yeah. Those yes. steps are painted. The threads are painted. And anytime <laughs> you put a painted thread into a tree, the paint binds on the sap once you start getting into the meat of the tree. Mm. If you get if you get Cranford screwing steps, they're raw steel and they're pointed they go in a tree really easy yeah we need some interesting yeah it's it's um you know i think that uh the thing that i've looked at and it's just because how i started hunting and, and still even like when we were in illinois and kansas we do it is you know we we try to get away from people so i mean we're getting deep in there and obviously the more gear you're lugging in the the bigger the pain in the ass it becomes for sure you know and so that's where as this whole kind of saddle thing came back out it was like well i mean like that makes a ton of sense like that's when i should be using it um but yeah it's just weird and and like i guess it's just again some of the false information and content that gets thrown out there i start watching people i'm like well shit that ain't any better than well and i think john is right to say like man if you don't have the like the right saddle just like i would say if you don't have the right hang on you're not going to have a good experience with it. It's yeah. It's like back in the day when I would pack in a 35 pound summit climber, like that thing was a pain in the ass to lug back in the woods. Yeah. You guys probably had, if you both had hawks, you probably had the absolute worst saddle you could own. That is the most comfortable saddle on the market. (laughs) Period. End of discussion. So it can only get better from here is what you're saying. Absolutely. Okay. You get a, you get a two panel saddle, whether it be my Eberhard signature through tether, Okay. Or latitude method. Latitude makes a really good two-panel saddle called the method. Okay. You left. I've I've actually got a video. I think it was my last saddle video on my YouTube channel. It's probably four videos back. Um, on how to use a two-panel saddle, how to properly use two-panel saddle. Well, so Once that you know how to use a two-panel, you'll never look at a single panel. See, that's what I was going to go to. John. I had never even heard that those words. Yeah. Well, before today. Because of this new craze, like I have seen, like obviously we all know tethered. We know I've heard latitude recently, um, trophy line, obviously. I don't know. Am I missing any other ones? Probably. Uh, John mentioned earlier cruiser, hot. yeah, cruiser. Yeah, and, and, and uh, so I mean, obviously people are kind of piggybacking off of this. Sure. Um, you know, this phase of things, um, you know, my one, I guess, worry for that industry a little bit is like, unlike a, a lock on usually, like I need multiple ones or I want to set those up. Like typically I just need one saddle, right? I mean, as long as I have one saddle, like I'm, I'm good. And if it's a good saddle, it should last me a while. Um, you know, do you I've owned th- it out of the same saddle since 1981. Yeah, okay. manufacturers don't like to hear that. Well, is, is where Jeremy's going. Yeah, with this. And, but I'm, right. I'm saying that because like this craze is here, and as long as people are making good saddles, like there's only a finite amount of people to market to or that are, are going to be saddle hunters. Like at some point, is there enough room for all these brands? I guess is what I'm getting at in the same space. Well, you look at there's 11 million deer hunters, and they've probably barely scratched the surface. And this year's going to be an interesting year. Because tree stand prices are going through the roof. Oh, 100%. Containers coming in from China and offshore. And steel's uh, outrageous. Steel's outrageous. And you got to keep this in mind. These containers coming in that are 20, they went from like $2,500 a container in January before Biden took office. Now they're up 
2325 grand per yep. container. Yep. And when you're looking at tree stands and ladder stands, you can only put a few on a container. Yep. So each one, they're they're almost doubling in price. They I'm are. in the industry. I've been looking at prices. Yeah, so we six hundred dollars for a ladder stand this year. Are you telling us you yeah. voted for, for Biden to uh, <laughs> to to make saddles more affordable and more appealing? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> nah. <laughs> And, and I also want to want to say this. This is a pretty good way of putting public land, hunting, and pressured areas into perspective. Uh, when you're scouting public land during postseason, what you want postseason gives you a really good look at what the land is because all yep. the foliage is down. It's going to look the same when you go back and hunt it during the rut as it does when you're scouting it. Yep. You know, you go out preseason and everything looks yep. a lot of security cover, and then when you go back and hunt it in November, everything's yeah, gone, gone and it looks open. But when you're scouting during postseason and you're on public land, you want to think to yourself, where are the only places on this public land where I might feel comfortable getting up and moving during daylight hours if everybody that's hunting here is trying to kill me? Because mm-hmm. yeah. that's exactly what deer do. And that's exactly, those are the types of areas that hunters push deer into before season. Because even though I may do my scouting properly during postseason, so I'm not screwing and boogering stuff up during preseason. Everybody else is yeah. public is scouting preseason and setting up their locations, so they're turning any two and a half or three and a half year old bucks nocturnal before the season season even open. Mm. Interesting. But you want to always think everybody's trying to kill me. Where's the only places I may move during daylight hours? That may require you to wear waders to cross a river or a canoe to go up a river or across a lake or a kayak or something. You've got to go where other people are not willing to go. That's pretty much clean. We've yeah. done it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I like the comparison a lot to like, cause it's easy to think about, you know, you're saying from a safety perspective, I think about it from a, a pattern ability. I just, I notice it in my daily routine, like just cause I'm always thinking about deer hunting. Um, I just take notice of things. I'm like, Oh, I've been at my house like three times today. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I went down to the street and and I did this. How many times in this week did I do that? And I try to like relate that to the life of, you know, a a whitetail buck. And, uh, you know, start to give some perspective on things. It's an easy way for me to think about it anyways. If I just sat at the gym, I'd kill you pretty easily. Right. (laughs) Yeah. The gym, my house, (laughs) you know, my refrigerator, especially. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but you're not you're not looking at security cover. You know, you know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, where these big name guys that hunt managed property. You know, it's like you would feel comfortable walking through. What state are you guys in? PA, yeah, Virginia, Pennsylvania. You'd probably you'd feel comfortable walking through some small rural town at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, would I assume that's correct? Yes, yeah, sure. But I bet you you would not walk through inner city Chicago in a crime laden area at one o'clock because you know, there's a security issue there. You know, there's a possibility of danger. Mm -hmm. Deer think exactly the same way. They know where there's danger and they avoid those places during daylight hours. Yeah. Yeah. John, do you think we as hunters underestimate the amount of daylight movement a, a mature buck does in some of these places just because we don't see it? It's not as visible. Yeah, it's usually in heavy security cover areas. So yeah, we underestimate it because you don't see it. It's like just just like midday hunting. You know, during rut phases, I hunt a lot of all day sets. Uh, but you don't just all day sit 
to say I'm all day sitting. You got to be in the right type of location with the right type of security cover. Right. Got to be in a bedding area with security cover, or you got to be in a, a transition zone between bedding areas where there's adequate security cover for that transition for them to feel secure. So there is a lot of daytime movement by mature deer, but it's in areas where there's typically you're not going to see it. Yeah. And I think probably all of, well, not all of us, because John obviously doesn't do it, but I, I bet a lot of hunters focus too heavily on food sources and things like that and not enough on that security cover. And so they're hunting food sources or damn near close to food sources thinking eventually he's coming, but that's not necessarily in the daytime. That's very true. A lot of hunters like to hunt field edges because they see deer. You know, to me, it's not about seeing deer. It's seeing the right deer during daylight hours. Yep. And, and, you know, destination feeding locations are fine as long as they have adequate security cover around the kill zone and adequate security cover tool to a, a bedding area. Yeah. Well, listen, man. By the way, by the way, Jeremy, you, I can tell you work out. And Thank Jeremy, you. you're in pretty good shape. You two I guys mean, I, I tend to work out. <laughs> if you guys got into a saddle and got the right saddle, you would never look at it. Well, we're going to, we're going to keep in touch. Guarantee yeah. you. We're going to, we're going to keep in touch. Probably looking at a John Eberhardt series. I mean, Mm-hmm. Seems to be I'll the right walk way. You, I'll walk you through it. It takes <laughs> 10 more minutes to learn how to use it, but you'll never look at a single panel saddle once you do. Okay. I love it. Uh, before we wrap up here, John, I, I obviously we mentioned YouTube a couple times. I hope everybody gets a chance to check out the new 2022 um, scent lock suit that you're putting out as well. Um, you and I talked before this. You've got some classes uh, that, frankly, sounds like are about filled up, but just briefly kind of touch on those classes so that whether it's this year and or in future years, you know, some of our listeners might want to check those out and, and what you do during those classes. Okay. They're two day classes. So the first day is out in the woods all day. We visit about, this is actually on a private piece. I couldn't do it on public because I'm not taking anybody to my public pieces because of Onyx, obviously. So <laughs> this is on a private piece. I've been hunting for a while and we visit about 14 preset locations so these are you know he's this particular 37 acres of multiple land it has swamps it has funnels has has pinch points it has crops has apple trees strewn throughout it um so it's got a lot of different looks we talk about entry routes exit routes for each location is this a morning spot is it an evening spot is it an early season location or early season or is it a rut phase location could it be a midday location during the rut phases? We go over everything. I answer any questions. Um, it's It blows my mind how some hunters don't understand entry and exits and how it's so important. And then and anyway, on day two, oh, also at the end of that day, which usually lasts from about 8.15 till 4, 4.30, on that same property, we I will have with my two boys three trees set up like 18 to 24 inches off the ground with three different saddle setups. So one of them is going to be, uh, basically it's going to have a stick and a platform mm-hmm. with a ring around the back from the platform, all at the same level. Uh, another step's going to have screw ins going up to it with a ring of screw in steps. Another steps, another tree is going to have strap on steps going up to a ring of strap on steps. So there's going to be three different looks and I'll have a lot of different types of saddles for people to try. And we spend about three hours there doing saddle demos. I welcome people to bring their own saddles and I'll critique what they're doing. And you wouldn't believe some of the stuff people have brought. 
Hmm. It's like you might as well carry two, you know, climbers <laughs> that carry so much stuff. So, you know, the, the, the point is I want to streamline everybody down, make it as simple as it can, make it as comfortable as it can, because there's so much YouTube stuff out there where if you sit the way they you show they show you, it's not comfortable for a long sit. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do that. And then the second day is an all day seminar, basically in Michigan's largest sporting goods store. And it's uh, in their outback room, which is a 200 seat auditorium. And it's all in nice office seats and it's open for questions. I have all my uh, prop, you know, scouting gear, location preparation gear. I have a lot of maps. I go over everything and anything to do with scent control. We talk about hunting pressure. I mean, I have a 52 page outline that we discuss and I answer, answer questions as well. The two page outline. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's awesome. Well, cool. uh, and they can go, what's the, what's the website to, to check that stuff out, John? Okay. Website. It's pretty simple. D E E R. So deer. Mm-hmm. And then hyphen that little line, deer hyphen john.net. Got it. Deer hyphen john.net. Perfect. Awesome. Well, cool, man. Well, listen, uh, again, truly honored to have you on, John. Um, we're going to have to do this again at some point, maybe after you do uh, your round of postseason scouting or something to kind of fill us in on yeah. anything new that you found. And um, do you go Do you go to the Archery Trade Show? I do. Uh, we'll be there we'll in person. I have 30 years. <laughs> we'll, we'll be there in person and we'll have the podcast set up. Uh, would love to, if you get uh, 30 minutes to sit down and talk in person with us, that would be fantastic. You know what? You got my cell number? Yeah, I got it. Give me a call. I'll have it on me. Perfect. Sounds good. That's great, John. Well, listen, man, thank you so much for your time. Truly appreciate it. And, uh, and just looking forward to getting you on again. And we can, hey, if you want, you know, I can get Ernie or Greg tethered over there to do a podcast. Too, if you want. That'd be awesome. That'd be fantastic. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you, sir. We appreciate it, and we'll be in touch soon. I appreciate the opportunity, guys. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that was awesome. Yeah, very cool. I mean, it, first of all, dude doesn't look 70. No, he looks great. Yeah, that dude will outclimb me on a tree for sure. Yeah. Um, but like just his experience and his expertise and what he's seen, like, you know, uh, and I, the the one thing that I know about John, and I've heard this in the industry several times, is people will say, ah, you know, he's pretty, he's pretty blunt about what, and it's like, well, yeah, man, he's got fifty five seasons under his belt. Of course, he's gonna be blunt. He's like, yeah, that doesn't work. This does work. Yeah, time's limited. Like at that point, he'll probably just say the same thing. Listen, it's life's too short now to get to the yeah. point. Yeah. So, but but really cool, and and um, you know, the the bow hunting pressured whitetails DVDs or books are are really cool resources, and you know, I think even um, you know, obviously we we hunt both, but I think sometimes we probably overthink or or underestimate even the the private access that we have, you know, whether it's our own properties or properties we hunt with other people. And that I think a lot of his bow hunting pressured whitetail tips would be valid and applied to those private land settings too. Oh yeah. Um, is not just, I think that's one thing that I've heard from wow, him. Dude, as we've been saying, like to, to actually find a, an unpressured whitetail these days, go to Kansas. Oh, yeah. Where are you going to go? Yeah. You have to go to the Midwest and even yeah. out there, you know, it's, it's getting slimmer and slimmer. Yeah. So, 
we um, obviously we appreciate John Eberhart being on. Cool to hear about his new Scentlock uh, product that he's got coming out. He's obviously got the saddles with tethered. Did we get him at ATA in a booth? Uh, we'll have a blast. <laughs> Real, beers. Really, really interesting to hear in the beginning too. Just like the, you know, just different perspectives on like on why people hunt. It's yep. You know, kind of an underlying theme to you know like our show here. And like I, I hope that that ultimately um, gives people enough perspective to like learn to appreciate why other people hunt you know and like we're not the only ones and so like while i'm always on this topic of like well i've got this private sure. land farm and i'm hunting i'm trying to hunt mature bucks like i know that's not the only reason that mm-hmm. the guys hunt you know and it's definitely not like the right one you know mm-hmm. so john is a great example of you know a, a kind of a different version of that and so yeah i mean i'll i'll there's the guy i'm looking for you know per our last conversation with eric and cody of you know, why would a guy hunt public when he could go hunt private? And it's, it's like that guy loves it. It's, it's cracked. I know what a perfect timing to have him on too. Cause I, I went into that with the mindset of like, yeah, who would do that? And he's like, I, that's what I do. That's what I do. Yeah. And you can tell he loves it. But I think to me, there's a guy with 55 years of hunting under his belt, plus being in the industry. And just like he said this year, like he was a wreck when that buck came in. That's cool. That's yeah. what I want to do. When I'm his age, I hope I'm still like that. If I'm not, somebody should kick me in the balls because I've done something wrong. Yeah, I'll be here. Thank you. Yeah, I'm younger <laughs> than you, so I'll be I'll be around. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we appreciate everybody listening to Hunter Podcast uh, with John Eberhart. If you haven't already, like, subscribe, comment, tell us what you think. Uh, make sure you leave comments or like or leave us a review, whatever, so you can enter the Stealth Cam Fusion X giveaway. And as we said to John, if you're at ATA, our booth is 3607. Just swing by and check us out. We'll be there live and in person. Just say hi and yeah. So uh, Merry Christmas to everyone. If you're listening to this, uh, this Christmas this weekend, and we will see you next time on the Hunter Podcast. Later. It's take me. Oh.